Hello, everyone. Welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm joined, as always, by an amazing panel. I'm going to pass it over first this week to Spartan Grown. Thanks, Jack. I'm Spartan Grown. You can uh, find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. And um, if you don't do Instagram, you can also shoot me an email. That's probably the best communication towards me nowadays is email, spartangrown at gmail.com. My Instagram is starting to get full or something because I'm not getting all the messages anymore. So I apologize if you send me messages on Instagram and I miss them. But uh, those are the two modes of communication I have right now. Uh, if you have any questions on uh, organic or synthetic growing cannabis, I can hopefully help you out. Happy to have you back. Next up, Dr. MJ. Hey, there you go. as soon as I need to unmute my mic, it's like it never wants to cooperate. Anyways, I'm Dr. MJ Coco from CocoaForCannabis.com. I'm excited to be here on the show. I missed last week. There was like, a, as somebody said, a sports ball thing happening last week. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to be back this week. I had a little YouTube premiere today for a new video. So I've been hanging around YouTube and uh, yeah, let's get on the show. Happy to have you back. And next up, Matthew Gates. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Gates, IPM specialist, but most of you know that, and I'm excited to talk more. I don't know what the topic is today, but nonetheless, chat has been on fire, so I look forward to that. Great stuff as always, and next up we've got Noah the Groa. Welcome back. How's it going, everybody? Yeah, like Dr. Coco said, there was the uh, Super Bowl on. I placed a decent-sized wager on the Chiefs for the, for the season started, so I was happy they won. But uh, yeah, I'm Noah DeGraw. You can find me on Instagram and uh, here with everyone else. Cheers, Noah. Happy to have you back and happy that that bet paid out. I imagine if you took it at the beginning of the season, the odds were probably a little bit, uh, you know, more stacked. So eight, probably eight to one. Oh, that's pretty solid. Good payout for you. So happy for you there. And next up, we've got the American one. Hello, Jack Panel and everyone in chat. I am the American one. Uh, on YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Akeem's on the IG. Uh, if you want to hit me up, ask me anything. And uh, yeah, it's good to be here again. I hope everyone had a great week and uh, weekend and looking forward to another good week. So yeah. Well, recently I got a good DM from a longtime listener, Brian420 uh, PM, I think is the Instagram name. He is a data analyst or former data analyst, and he reached out to me with uh, just some interesting information in regards to some of the nutrient companies and the high levels of EC that they are pushing. And I'm actually happy Doc is back with us this week because I kind of think of tonight as like the race to the top, so to speak. And as the cheap home grow, my thought has always sort of been like the race to the bottom because as little as I could give the plant and get it to be healthy and successful to harvest, um, that's the best for me because then I'm spending less money on nutrient. But what I've seen recently is like, whether it's Jungle Boys or... Uh, certain nutrient uh, manufacturers, a lot of them are recommending extremely high, extremely high EC, like double, triple, quadruple what I would say on Cocoa for Cannabis or other websites that I uh, recommend people follow because in my experiences, they've had lots of success with those lower numbers. So uh, I'll try and search for the uh, post and maybe uh, pull some of that stuff up, but I'm going to pass it to Dr. MJ and ask kind of what are your thoughts on seeing 
either nutrient companies or growers, whether it's on Instagram or commercially, wherever, uh, pushing these really high, I'm talking like three, four EC, and maybe even sometimes higher numbers. I mean, we just have a lot of research in, in basic horticultural science that lets us know that those ECs are counterproductive to plant health and plant nutrition in general. Um, you can train plants to tolerate pretty high ECs if like that's what you're into doing. And some farmers have to do that, frankly, because they're like, trying to irrigate with salty water or other issues like that. So there's been quite a bit of research that goes on into sort of the, the EC limits for effective agricultural production. Um, and for reasons totally unrelated to, to plant nutrition or trying to force feed phosphorus or whatever it else, else is that they think that they're doing, just simply having an EC that high puts unnecessary stress on your plant. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't think there's sort of much rigorous science to back that up. Um, but again, you know, you can train cannabis plants to, to be able to tolerate pretty high doses and then become convinced that that's sort of the, the secret to success. Um, it, it's a lot easier, I think, to be consistent and productive at lower levels that really take into consideration both the, the fertilization needs of the plant and the sort of osmos, osmotic need for water of the plant as well. All good points. And to my understanding as well is um, in other horticulture and agriculture, it's a fairly a well understood uh, ranges, at least for you know, maybe different plant sizes or, or different types yeah. of plants. Um, I do feel like some plants are maybe a little bit heavier feeders versus other plants that are maybe lighter feeders. But can you speak to that at all? Is that? Uh, well, it, there's two issues. So there's the, the feed issue. But but that's different than the EC issue per se. I mean, and they're related, certainly. Like the amount that we can can quote unquote feed or the amount of nutrients that we can provide is is limited by the EC number. But the EC number is a limit for reasons unrelated to nutrition. Um, so this is usually studied in the context of irrigating with saline water. Um, and sort of what is the limit of, of that for different crops and breeding crops to be able to tolerate certain salinities in the water. Um, because plants need to absorb that water through osmosis. And if it's salty or has a high electrical conductivity, high electrical conductivity, what we're measuring there basically is how salty it is. Um, if it's salty, it makes it really difficult for the plants to absorb that water through osmosis. So that's one of the, the sort of key factors that you start really pushing at when you start raising EC above two. Um, you really put stress on the plants to be able to absorb water that's that salty. Water, like natural sources of water that are above an electrical conductivity of or two are considered unsuitable for agriculture. You ready for this, Doc? I'm going to share my screen right now and I'm going to uh, hurt science's feelings with this uh, Athena Proline suggestion. So yeah. <laughs> let me, this is a screenshot courtesy of Brian 420 PM, but it was shared via Athena's page. So you can go and find this Athena Blended Pro. Uh, are y'all seeing this? Just the um, browser here? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so this is week one, week two, week three of flower. And he was commenting, why is there a 4.0 EC higher than input? Because he was talking about, you know, he thinks Indeed. that input should be closer to the runoff. So they're saying input EC 3.0, 4.0 EC. Yeah, 
runoff target EC, 6.0 to 7.0. Well, well, uh, first of all, that's what happens when you go in with too hot water. I mean, there's more nutrients than the plant's going to take up in in a situation like that. That's what leads to the buildup. What leads to the buildup, what leads to the three to become a six is that the plant is taking out the water faster than it's taking out the nutrients there. I mean, and it's struggling to do that. Um, And and that's driving up your your EC number. You'd have to fertigate very frequently to keep that down. I mean, this is one of the reasons that we fertigate frequently, but... It, there's this is just this is nonsense man going in at three and coming out at six you can grow plants a hell of a lot faster if you keep them like at 1.5 the whole time um to going me in even at like 1.2 and coming out at 1.5 i mean that's what we try to to hit and, and that's why i like it, a lot of people have, have started growing like i do right because it works really effectively like keeping them in that tight range having that kind of a swing between you know, from three to seven. I, no I hardly even know a, how the plants are really, alive. Yeah, no plant yeah. is able to absorb water really much at, at that level of electrical conductivity. So I, heard, I liked the I liked the uh, uh, metaphor we used last time, or maybe I said it, or some of us, we kind of agreed roots are like the lungs of the plants in a way, you know, with getting those nutrients in if we want to use that metaphor. And if you have the... I really liked how you put it, Dr. Coco. It's kind of like, it's like if we extend that metaphor, it's like they can't breathe. It's like there's no air to breathe. Yeah. You know, you got you to gotta put more air into the atmosphere. It's like living really high up on a mountain or, or living in a, or being in a confined space. And, you know, the air is just getting too carbonic and there's no oxygen anymore. It's like you got to put in, they're struggling. I really liked how you put that. Yeah. Y- yeah. I mean... <laughs> they're going to be struggling for water is there um, a flush and showing wilting there? signs. I can't imagine you have a plant in a, in a, in seven EC without that plant showing wilting signs. I mean, it's just not going to be able to get water. This is a really great example. I think of um, like the thousand mile stare on this thing is, is like beware official charts. will put quotes on that. Beware official charts from the people selling you the product. <laughs> this is the, somebody who's selling selling athena is the nutrient company they're the ones selling the nutrient of course they benefit by telling you to use more of it they're almost certainly going to be telling you to do a, a weekly or a bi-weekly flush with numbers like this too yeah because they're yeah, so scheduled jack, do you see it? uh that was not ever included anywhere you guys looked at the exact same information that i was okay. just showing that was the full information and then when i uh, never talk about a flush Brian followed up and he was talking to somebody and they're like, this is a tale as old as time. And they're basically like disregarding his uh, concern about such high ECs and Athena has high uh, dryback. But I think that they're giving some sort of other um, maybe like acid to help with the um, it's either enzymatic cleaner to strip the root ball of the buildup is what he's saying. You Athena has it's a, a- it's I think like it's cleanse, a peri- peri- cleanse, yeah, cleanse is a periodic mm-hmm. acid or uh, similar to like a pro- hydrogen peroxide. Is that mixed in with all the water? Yeah, it's mixed in at two milliliters every all the time, every watering, no matter when you are in the plant. It's like a base, uh, like a uh, for what's that root drench that people are that they used to use to like be eat, like you see roots, like you use it just to keep the roots from uh, growing bacteria, kind of a thing. 
it's just a beneficial a bacteria or it's activated not beneficial or... it destroys this it, it's an oxidizer it just destroys yeah, okay. all all bacteria <laughs> periatric acid i believe is what it is we could probably look up cleanse okay. he says acetic acid. a third option which is called cleanse. maybe periacetic i think you're right Matthew. i think you're right yeah you know the other thing when the ec swings that much regardless of sort of the level but it's more than doubling during the course of of whatever events between inflow well and that cleanse is making you dump your nutrients literally down the drain so like they're having you recommending you use tons of nutrient and then they're recommending a product that will strip your root ball of that nutrient so you literally just flush it down the drain it is kind of a waste huh <laughs> it's a major way this is the cheap home grow podcast i mean if you can yeah, get away with waste. using less it's either cheap nor home nor grow it's a big waste basically there's been pretty good nutrients for doing organic organic you know fertigation or dwc or other you know hydroponic methods for growing plants that's not really new what's new is there's all sorts of cannabis companies that are trying to enter into this space and and sort of convince you that they've got some special product designed specifically for cannabis and it's going to be sort of better because they're from like you know someplace where cannabis is famous or they are marketing it directly towards cannabis or whatever and in in my experience the dutch across this market they're inferior products sold at elevated prices that that really you end up, I mean, specifically, and I've said this on this show before, one of the things that I, I caution against is nutrient companies that recommend high electrical conductivities. That's usually a sign that their nutrient blend isn't well made. Basically, they have to give you a pretty high electrical conductivity in order to deliver all of the, the various nutrients that you need in the appropriate PPMs. I mean, that's sort of where the difference is between EC and PPM, to be honest with you. When we're dosing nutrients and thinking about your, your plant's nutrient needs, you want to think about that in PPMs of individual nutrients. But when we're measuring EC or when we're measuring EC, PPM with a, you know, a, a meter at the end, it's like the, the total. It's not like how much is nitrogen, how much is calcium, how much is phosphorus, all of that. Um, and so we're not really that number that we measure when we're just measuring the total water. It, it, it's not about nitrogen, calcium and, and potassium and all that. We're measuring it to make sure that, you know, the plant's going to be able to drink and it's pretty consistent to the water that it's been in before, because, you know, a plant that's adjusted to 2000 EC it sort of wants it to stay at 2000. If it shifts down to 500, then it's going to have to work to sort of adjust to that. And if it goes up from there, it's going to have to work to adjust to that too. Yeah. That homeostasis adjustment's like a major stress factor. And like, why would you pile that up on it? Um, yeah. You know, and always ask this other question, why are they talking to you? Why are they trying to sell it to you through like an Instagram advertisement or something? You or know, a very like, sublimate, like a, a not so obvious, like um, Brian was saying, a guy that I have respect for, and I, I've, you know, referenced their guides and stuff in the past, Green Jeans Garden, he's saying is using Athena, but they're recommending a dryback and going as high as 2.7 on the EC. And then Jungle Boys, if you watch the Jungle Boys walkthroughs, like a lot of people do, the Canna Cribs. I just saw somebody post a photo of Spartan Grown on Canna Cribs at um, Mitten Canico from a while back. But people watch these things, and then a lot of people put a lot of credence into it because they see a professional facility lots of money right. worth of lights and all this stuff. And they say, these guys are the professionals. They must know what they are doing. Well, they are also often sponsored by the nutrient company directly. They have discount codes with their name on it, which will get you 5, 10, 20, however much percent off. And 
that being said, they can afford to dump as much of that nutrient on there because they're getting it for free or extremely yeah. deeply discounted. Yeah. So then they can walk you around their facility and say, oh, yeah, we're we're growing at this. But they're not showing you the EC meter. So when Jungle Boys are saying, oh, yeah, we're doing four EC in and seven EC out. I've never actually looked at the EC meters on those things. They're just walking around with some, some guy saying that. And so there's financial motives that we need to be aware of. Yeah. And the other thing, Doc, you said um, PPM matters when you're worrying about each individual nutrient. And the reason you use EC so often and never really have to even mention that is because you've done the vetting. You have a proper nutrient line that has an NER, nutrient element ratio, which is proper for cannabis and other plants to grow them without having to go with a 4EC. I have recommended 1.5 EC to so many people, hundreds, hundreds of growers at this point, multiple hundreds. And every single time they get their EC down to that level, keep it there consistently, uh, keep pH roughly in range and just get their watering more consistent. The plants green right up, get healthier and start growing faster and have way less issues. Every single time you lower the EC on a plant from like two something down to 1.5 or 1500 like that, every single plant is going to be visibly happier the next day. It's going to be like, oh, I'm a happy plant now. Yeah, People I, like I totally think that I have some secret formula, but it's like really they did the thing. They got it to where it needed to be. It's just that the before they had a misguided yeah. target. Like if you're aiming over here, your target's over there, you're going to be hitting that target, but it might not be a good target. So if you give them a proper range, then it really can help them uh, pretty easily. Like I think a lot of people, cocoa, they call it hydro on training wheels sometimes. Like I've heard people use that as like an insult um, against cocoa in, in the earlier days. And, and to be honest, <laughs> I think a lot of people that used to say that switched from their DWC system or their, um, you know, NFT, their nutrient film technique or whatever they used to have to cocoa. And they're like, oh, wait, this shit actually yields great. It tastes awesome and it grows really fast. And there's like, if my power goes out, my plants just don't die in 12 hours. So there's lots of benefits. Like Loki Grow is one that I think of. He's a New York guy, I believe. And he had a bunch of DWC tables, but he has a whole room. I think it's like for breeding and just experimental growing, but of cocoa and you get yeah. success out of it. So. The other thing is I really believe that we we drain less water to waste than DWC grows do. I mean, every time you, you change out your DWC tanks, it's such a big nutrient dump. Um, I never sort of run off that much water, you know, like during the whole course of a grow, I'll run off less water than than somebody running DWC will, will produce in one sort of tank change. So um that's another side to it that's actually one of the reasons that dwc isn't more broadly adopted in in commercial production it's a lot more water yeah that's a really good point you know i i just speaking from personal experience just to add a little bit of anecdote to this more empirical you know switching sides here but i knew somebody who um my understanding was that the reason why they were able to the reason why they were able to obtain the rank that they did in their in the company was because they were able to make their costs go down through a certain through their relationship with like a nutrient line manager or something they were able to make you know the money go down that was the important thing it wasn't <laughs> just purely the economics of that not thinking about the greater you know effect that that has the eutrophication that damages um you know the outside property or the pipes and wherever they go down the the drains and wherever the gutters release to any of that stuff, it doesn't really matter. None of those consequences. They're very rarely, um, they're really put into the system or at least the effects of those, the, the, the ramifications are not really priced in as they say. Right. And so that's right. just really unfortunate. I also like DWC, but I agree with Coco is that 
with Dr. Coco in that it's not really uh, economical in a lot of cases. And it would be great if some of that water can be routed through some system and maybe, and some people can do that. And some people have ideas for that. And I'm really here for it. Not saying that that can't be done, but uh, yeah, that's a, that's a real, um, as they call it, a virtual resource. You know, it's uh, it's there, but not really, you know, like when you grow in California, you grow all these plants and then the water gets taken up and then transported outside. That, that water doesn't come back. Right. Those nutrients that are taken out. So they don't come back. So you had to reapply them or you had to reamend them or something. I can't remember how he claimed to do it. Maybe I don't know what it was, but I'm pretty sure it was Weedner DWC. And I think that he had a way of minimizing the water use or just doing a really good job about recycling it or using like their um, water from the dehumidifiers as a water source and things like that to because they love DWC, I believe. And they, that's yeah, that really yeah, I mean, well and I think you can pull it off. It, it, it's hard to, to scale it and make it efficient sort of in, in larger scale situations it ends up being a lot more work. Um, and that's why like sort of the vast majority of commercial cannabis facilities are now using cocoa. It's just easier, more sustainable and, and more scalable system to set up. There's a beautiful commercial setup. I think it's called like the Altitude Ranch and um, they have the uh, reverse DWC system and um, I think it's called Current Culture H2O. And uh, I definitely think it, I agree with you, Doc. It's it's harder to scale for sure, but some people have done it and it is kind of cool when they run through their like thing and they yeah, just drop really these good. monster plants and uh, they pull out these huge root balls that are like basketball size plus. And it's just like See, pure that's white roots. Thing. DWC does encourage you to sort of larger plants and longer veg time sort of because you want to grow larger plants. Although you can do sort of sog grows in DWC. They're a little bit harder to manage um, because you're running multiple plants in, in tubs. But yeah, and anyways, like we were talking about earlier, like we've had uh, planned power outages here for like maintenance and stuff on the grid. And my plants being in uh, earth box, for example, where there's soil with water below it, um, power goes out. I mean, it's not the end of the world. They sat for the whole 12 hour period and didn't even bat an eye. But if they were in a DWC system, I'd be panicking. And yeah. so that's a, a major uh, game changer for, you know, not even just like going from DWC to any other form of hydro, but there's lots of other options out there that could be more forgiving in that regard. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to a, a grower up in up north recently, a hydro grower about this issue. I can't remember. I don't think it was weed neared. Um, but they were talking about how long they can go just because their reses are cool. So that's the other thing. If you do, hit, I, I thought I wanted to bring that back into the show. If you do hit that situation, DWC growers out there um, where, you know, you, your air pumps turn off because you've hit a power outage um get your water temps down that's sort of the other thing that, that you can do to potentially help you um like float some frozen water in there float some frozen water bottles or something else to to sort of keep that water temperature down because water will stay the oxygen that you have will stay a lot better if you can keep the the, the water temperature in the 60s i agree with doc but if you have a hard time and can't do that what can help too is go on the route, kind of taking it back to be our beginning conversation. Products like Cleanse, 
um, the the chemical route of, of sterilization can help you in that situation too. H two O two, yeah, yeah, H two O two is a classic one. Yeah, um, but yeah, keeping it as cool as you can, draining it off. I mean, if you're in a DWC tent, drain three quarters of it off. Then, if you're going to be sitting for more than a couple of hours um, and expose most of the roots to air, just leave like the tips of the roots dangling in the water. But yeah, you're kind of up against the clock. Earlier when we were talking about the whole cleanse thing, uh, I used to use Heavy 16 and they had a product called Finish, but it would be given at like one mil per gallon for like the whole entire grow. And then like at the flush, you'd give it like 15 or 20 mils per gallon or something like that. There was also Roots, which was given like one mil per gallon. And I think it just helps prevent some of those um, things that can cause root issues, other root rot or other pathogens and things like that, trying to could just be a, a surfactant or a wedding agent too. They're often yeah. sort of dosed like that, right? Where you give a little bit each each for each watering, and then a lot of it basically acts like a flush. Yeah, I think just... the cleanse might have been a one of those acids. If I looked into it, it was like a soluble potash or something. But there, I think, is other stuff that's hidden in the paperwork behind it. And the roots was basically their version of um, whatever that popular like the monosilicic acid. The more expensive one uh, everybody uses like this one product but power SI. yeah power si is the one that a lot of people i think use but i think uh a few nutrient lines have like made that bottle part of their line as their like roots um thing did i hear Noah the girl there for a second or was somebody yeah else i was just gonna say didn't you i thought i remember you saying uh a while back that you liked that uh heavy 16 line you thought, or you thought it was decent is what i remember you saying. i think it made great flavor like the every single harvest had amazing flavored buds like once i got the fuller line i think there was something called prime and i think that was more of like an organic uh, it had like a humic acid uh and every time i put it in there i could see it like in the water like get really dark and it had a kind of rich smell to it but um just like the veg ab i feel like was kind of like a pretty standard hydro line but when i I hate to say like, oh, when you added the more bottles, it actually did better. But I, I maybe it was just my own freaking, it probably was. No, I think so, Jack. I haven't used it, but I was talking to a rep one time. And I just was asking him, I'm like, what is, you know, tell me about your line. And I said, is it organic? And he's like, well, kind of. I'm like, <laughs> I laughed at him. I'm like, what do you mean kind of? And so what it is was, was the basis, like, just like you said, man, like, so the AB, and I think there's a third bottle. That was your straight, basic salt base, but all the additives were organic based. So then came you know your humix and your uh, microbes and and but all the other thing additives were all organic based. So funny enough, on Grow Diaries, I got labeled organic when I was growing with Heavy Sixteen, and I didn't put myself in the organic category. They like shifted it there because how Heavy Sixteen had marketed and pushed their stuff. But like when I dug into it. I actually called and talked to them on the phone. They're like, yeah, we just haven't paid for the organic certification because it's a process to go through. And we don't actually care to because like you were just saying, the AB is more of a, a base uh, synthetic hydro line where the additives are more of an organic base, but they play well together. And I was at the time getting free compost tea every Wednesday and Sunday from a hydro store. And that had other stuff in it as well. So I think that it was more of like a, some people call it synganic. I had a little uh, earthworm castings that I was throwing in there occasionally. Um, but it, it worked great. I can't complain other than the price, <laughs> the price of the system. And I've had amazing stuff grown by Dr. MJ from, uh, I believe the, uh, uh, what's it called? It's just the three line, the trio, um, right? The GH, GH. I, I could be wrong. 
But and the, and Jack's three two one is another one out there that's a very simple line. A lot of people grow with it and grow fire. I really believe the genetics and the cultivation is uh, a much more large player than the uh, thing that's fed to the plant. Oftentimes, so, hey, maybe we'll see like what they do with like some wheat and grass um, uh, breeding, <laughs> make them more resistant to saline water. <laughs> maybe maybe that'll be the. Uh... I, some would argue this has happened That's with cannabis already, go, I guess. because all of the Dutch seed banks were, uh, you know, having to sell stuff that wouldn't Perhaps. hurt underneath the conditions of people like Dutch nutrient companies that are saying, "Hey, give three, four, five, six, seven EC," and then these plants are like literally barely surviving, and people are like, "Oh, you know, run it until it gets." Uh, like yellow tips, uh, get the painted fingernails to quote Rasta Jeff. I love him, but that's something he always says, uh, push them, push them, push them. And they push them, they push them with nutrients and they push it high and hard. And uh, some people, and many, I've argued this, stress can lead to good results. A lot of people like to quote the grapes. The Some of the best wine comes from the most stressed grape. So I think a lot yeah. of people think that it could be the same with the cannabis. The biggest yield doesn't come from the most stressed plant though. Like, I agree. Pretty much ever. And a, a good, healthy plant can yield high amounts of terpenes and cannabinoids. Like, look at yep. Brandon Russ plants. He yields giant-ass yeah. plants. And my biggest, best plant ever that I've personally grown yep. was my most potent. So that to, to Absolutely. Me just, the healthiest plants are the most potent. I mean, keep your plants healthy and happy. There's never been a stressed little run that produces the best cannabis. I mean, I mean, seriously, growers, ask yourself that, that you've been doing this for a while. The best bud comes from your healthiest plants. And if you want to grow better bud, I mean, keep your plants healthy. And that means not pushing them too hard like that. And if anybody wants to sort of argue the counterpoint, I'd love to, to go at that. But like, I'll say... Yeah. I'll say this. I think what, what you said, Dr. Coco, specifically, exactly right. Like it's the, it's like, I, uh, I recently had a conversation with somebody who was, uh, you know, it was, it's my white whale, it's genetic testing or is my genetics are superior because my plants have been stress tests so much, never quantifying what even that means. Um, they can resist all pests and diseases by my seeds. And as you guys, as anyone who follows us knows, I uh, get a kick out of that kind of claim. And I'm always unsatisfied when people are unable to sort of quantify what they mean. And that's the thing. How much stress and the kind of stress is very important. And I think that you can go, you can do very well. You don't have to make the plant miserable. <laughs> you know, you can have, you can grow it in certain ways. And then you can needle it, maybe very precise kind of priming with certain kinds of stressors. And, and, that, and the kind of stress, this is like sending an athlete to the gym kind of stress. This isn't yeah, like, exactly, I mean, exactly. Yeah. For that, a particular, like a particular workout regimen. Weights kind of stress, not by a healthy individual that, that's like geared and primed ready to do that. Not like making somebody suffer, right? Exactly. Not like breaking their legs <laughs> or like, right. you know, <laughs> yeah. Not or like they're starving them like in certain cases. Exactly. Whether you're over or underfeeding, yeah. you're starving your plant. You're starving it of oxygen if you're overfeeding because the amount of nutrient makes it so saline they can't take up oxygen. I got a chopper right overhead, so I'm just going to let Tao jump in. Listen, there's, <laughs> there's a paper. I'll go chunk it down. It says definitely that, uh, it may not, with, with according to them, THC levels increase with uh, botrytis infestation. And I saw there's that. other I saw stuff that. in there. Yeah, there's PM. There. So there's some, as it was a PM, there's it was PM. evidence that, yeah, certain stresses yeah. Can, can push something somehow. I don't know. I didn't well, really usually, look at 
Well, that's the thing. Usually I read that paper the stress time. is the stress has like a, a reason, right? And there's a response to a specific right. kind of trigger. Right. So right. if you know what the effect of that trigger is, then it's a simple calculus, right? It's I want this effect. So I'm going to prime these stressors at this level, however that's quantified. Right. Not like I'm just going to hit it with every single pest oh, and every single other environmental issue. Yeah, exactly. I, I heard from Miss Nudie Gross, who works in the legal Canadian market from their former master growers at places she used to work, they were being told and telling others in Canada to release thrips into their crop intentionally. Oh, right. Okay. Because of the stress response from the thrips would increase the cannabinoid percentage and the terpene percentage. This was That's literally from that paper, right? We didn't we what go I was that? told by her. And then the other thing, Tao was just quoting the PM that I looked at that article, the max THC or whatever it was. And I think it might even been hemp. I'm pretty sure it was a hemp article, but it let's was just say both, for, yeah, they looked at THC and CBD part. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. But I think it was like 16% was like the top, top, top one. And like the, it was being compared to like 11 or 12%. So they're like, oh, look at this big percentage. Right. When it got PM, it went from 11 to 15. And it's like, guess what? People are growing 25, 30, 35, uh, 40 yeah. stuff now. <laughs> Work with a higher percentage strain, right? To to see if that is actually you know, right. Well, cultivated. And is that even um, is that even a generalizable fact? That's the other question, right? It's it's right. such a small right. sample size, guys. Everybody wants to do, like make these grandiose sweeping sort of conclusions from very small sample yeah. sizes of some of these tests. Exactly. It's interesting insight, and we'll eventually learn more about this. But yeah, I don't think we know enough to say sort of how that works all the time. Yeah, time. yeah, you gotta, you gotta sit there and think, guys. Isn't it fucking cool that we kind of know? <clears throat> we can kind of sit here collectively and say we kind of know more than what. A lot of the fucking science really knows on this stuff. Yeah, it's funny to kind of, um, it's funny to be in a situation because I haven't really experienced it before in my life to be in a situation to where you're part of a, you're, yeah, you're part of an industry where science is proving you right, like you like stuff that you've already seen or already kind of confirmed in your own garden. Science comes up and catches up later to just prove you right. I think it, it just gives me a giggle every time that happens. Well, let yeah. me jump in and say quickly that. Uh, you know, we, we're really resin gland harvesters more than anything else. So that's the way I look at it. And if you have a healthy plant, you can have more plant material with more resin on it. So even if some chance a stressor will give you more THC, if there's half the amount of resin glands because the plant is damaged, then you're at a loss anyway. So right. plus, if they're putting in thrips, then they got to get rid of the thrips eventually, right? So yeah, yeah exactly. Very expensive. Talk. I never heard of that. Man. That's <laughs> wild. Imagine, imagine if instead of doing that, because the growth, because the defense comes, I just posted on my Instagram, you know, shameless plug about exactly this concept, growth, the growth defense trade-off. We know that that's basically how, this is the conserved way that land plants deal with stress. And in reality, probably aquatic plants too, even algae, really. And it's like, the defense comes at some cost to growth by which I mean vegetative growth, uh, you know, body growth, essentially the, 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 the differentiation of tissue, you know, from like vascular to flowering tissue and all that important stuff. So that comes at a cost and it comes at a labor cost and a price cost and a product cost and all that. So it's like, imagine if instead of doing all of that jazz, you just um, find what the priming effect of the thrips are and then find a really cheap way to prime it. And then there's no damage but they, 
they might create the defense response like, oh, I'm going to get some thrips now. But then that never happens, is where the really. cost comes to find the, yeah, the well, primer. That's where it gets expensive. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. The, to actually know, to actually know in your mind. An example of like is. a study that did a good job, I think. And it wasn't perfect because if you look at the pictures of the plants, I mean, we could probably all grow a little bit better plants than them. But the University of Guelph in Canada, I think, is actually doing some decent research. One of the studies being the one that Doc made me aware of when I was advocating for drought stress latent flower. Unbeknownst to me, there was already a study out there. Doc linked me to and i looked at it and one drought stress event through the entire flower cycle one a single one had marginal benefits there was like an increase in thc terpenes and a small dry flower yield that was not even significant it was a small one study at this point but yeah it's promising results right but but the thing that i liked about it was they also did two drought stresses and three drought stresses and four drought stresses and five and six and seven once a week for the whole flower cycle and guess what Every other one of the circumstances ruined the crop. It made it so much worse. So it was like the results versus the control, which was like a properly watered condition all the way through harvest, which they said as their baseline. And then they repeated that after they made that like their SOP side by side versus the drought stress with clones, like everything controlled as properly as they could. They saw the one drought stress in like week seven or week eight for like, I think it was seven or 10 days until 45 degree droop so they had like very measurable identifiable and in my opinion scientifically recreatable unlike saying uh proprietary soil or yeah we used (laughs) hp pro mix with gh3 part and we fed it in cocoa for what you know they they told you exactly what it was the ec the measurement of the nodes and everything like if you get into that paper is very well done agronomically and scientifically so i have to take my hats off to them when it is done well and um i'm getting ready i'm late flower to let my plants go a little dry until they start to droop because it's something i found out about in lavender i've done it in cannabis and just one time that's all you need and you might even do it accidentally one time, but this was like my Velvet Punch F3, my second run of it. Uh, the first one was a stress test run. And I can see not only the growth speed, but also the yield, also the aroma, the color, everything in the plant versus the stress test run is so much better in the run. I'm just crushing it. I'm giving everything perfect all the way up until the very last you know, two weeks when I'm going to dress stress one time. But it's noticeable, the difference in, in veggie and everything. Uh, it's you're going to be a lot happier when you treat, treat your plants right. And the chopper's coming back. So hopefully I'm uh, not being looked after. Yeah, be careful. Stepping and kind of agreeing alongside what Matt kind of the same along the same lines is like, you got to be careful when you're doing drastic things like introducing thrips too, because you can be introducing all kinds of other things like viruses and Good God point. knows what else. But what made me think of that too was chat. And I want to highlight this comment because it was really hard for me not to laugh openly when i read it and it, it was who was it here was it it was slow finger two in chat and they said uh they said peppermint repels some pests when i went to pick some it was covered in white flag <laughs> <laughs> yeah because it's a concentration thing right like that's yeah. the that's the thing i've seen the same with like, marigold because I was told if you plant marigold around the outside of your garden, it'll, you know, repel some stuff out. And I went to look at the marigolds, like the pre-planted ones in the nursery, and they were covered in, like, spider mites. So, it's just... Uh, yeah, I think they're attractors, aren't they? I thought they were, like... Uh, for like some a, things. A That's signal. the thing. Pest is so broad. Like, it could be... Right. It has some effect for some things and not others. And 
you know yeah but like and that's the thing with like um even with like natural pesticides like the bugs various bugs can get resistance to them right it doesn't matter that there's some natural compound what we're doing is we're hitting them at a concentration that they can't deal with and when we and when plants are having a response the res- the response is maybe not because people think like repellents or something means that the plant I understand that like that can sound like oh the plant the pest will just not be on the plant but that's not really what happens what happens is that there's this really complex chain of events which might even not even be relevant to the pest that's experiencing the defense response too there's no guarantee but assuming that it is it's more like instead of having like the whole leaf get eaten like half the leaf gets eaten and then maybe the maybe the caterpillar or whatever moves to another leaf and it has its own behavior response. So like maybe it only eats the new growth because that defense isn't there. Or maybe it only eats the old growth because the defense isn't there or something like that. So there's all kinds of things happening. But usually when there's a resistant, a genetic resistance that's really, really good against some sort of pest, it's because there's this concentration that's up over other cultivars or whatever that don't have it as much. And you have this like more marginal effect that in aggregate is way better for the yield because they can outgrow the damage. I just um, saw some corn seed that was advertised. It yeah. was like a non-GMO corn seed, but they had like data based on like, this is like the hardiest one, most resistant to cold and this and mm-hmm. that. It's like hybrid 85 or something. But um, it is, it's interesting, the um, interactions with with pests and, and all the layers that you have to kind of go through. I remember Hoda Herb, a good friend of the show, he's been on this, this panel several times in the past. He mentioned, I think, after seeing Brandon Rust and, and Matthew demonstrate how well a banker plant can work, like a explosive yeah. pepper to pr- produce uh, pollen that won't, uh, you know, pollinate your cannabis plant, but it feeds your predators. So Brandon implemented this successfully, and then Matthew and him kind of talked about it on this show and others, and I think other people were interested, Hoda himself included. So he went and got himself a explosive ember or some other pepper from a local nursery, and in doing something to try and prevent pests, he actually brought pests into his garden because that pepper plant was infested when he got it. So yeah, yeah. that's what some people were sounding like, right? Going to the store and finding a plant that you were going to bring into your garden that's covered in the spider mite sounds like a point of ingress for new pests too. So be careful. Right. And in that case, he already had uh, you know predators on hand. So they were essentially going to get eaten up, but it is a uh, still a risk you take and like spartan said it, it could be more than just the pest i know another one likes to ride on like the legs i think it's like uh matthew probably could tell me but um, the white fly and the broad mite is what you're thinking of i think yeah yeah so they literally like travel together like it is riding the uh, other pests through the uh situation so and yeah, the, the other thing is like ants can bring bag. animal uh, husbandry with um aphids i think they like pick up aphids yeah. and then use them to make the plant more susceptible because they like to uh, eat the stuff that the aphids produce like the uh whatever honeydew i think yeah 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 and like and some and you know it goes there's turtles all the way down so like the honeydew has some microbes from the gut of the aphid and that when the ants eat it or whatever else will eat it like wasps or something then those microbes get into their gut and there's been some interesting interactions there but yeah, it's it's like it's it's this crazy kind of cycle. And we do use banker plants and things. It is important. Like you can't just turn off your brain. You have to like also crop scout those those bankers too. And like Dr. Coco mentions, there's a there's a logistical cost to that, right? And so 
maybe it's good for you in some places and maybe in other places it's not because maybe your banker plan of choice is like like I was working with somebody um in uh east of east of uh sort of more easterly sorry in, in southern california and they were looking for banker plants but they wanted them to be native plants because they wanted to grow native plants in the area and they wanted this good synergy but one of the other benefits was that over here in this coastal chaparral environment a lot of plants are kind of we kind of woody kind of scrubby not really like not lush you know <laughs> you know so that's great because they also tend to not get a whole lot of pests. Um, even the native ones, uh, they tend not to be pests of like the wood and, and that kind of stuff. And so um, when we chose those, it was for that exact reason. So you can get all these benefits of like attracting certain pollinators and, and some of which are predators at different life stages, but um, you know, without the, as much of a downside as you might with like, even my favorites, like the uh, exploding ember pepper plants and things like that. So there's a trade-off and, there, and you can do some research and, and really nail down something that might be a little bit more niche and um, more advantageous that way. So I kind of want to jump back a little bit real quick to something Doc said earlier about the runt. And I agree with you, typically not being the most potent plant in the room. Um, but I will say one of my plants was an exception in not the most potent I've ever grown. Uh, it was Platinum Yeti F3. I think F3s and beyond like um, start to get a little bit slower, especially early in veg, especially from seed. Um, some people have told me side by side growing my Velvet Punch F3 with their other stuff that's F1 or, or FEMS, which are like S1s or uh, first generation FEM crosses. In the early veg stage, they're like, your stuff is, and they're being, I'm glad my testers are being honest. They're like, it's just, it's slower. It's not growing as fast. And um, I think from what I understand about the, filial generation of breeding the further you go down that line the less vigor you get the f1 has that hybrid vigor if you're breeding with dissimilar parents but i, I noticed that when i also grew uh, two scrog sent me some f4 uh, cinderella 99s and they were just slower than everything else that i had popped from cd so i thought that was an interesting thing that i don't might have played think into that necessarily sorry um, I don't think it would necessarily get like less and less and less vigorous. You're certainly not going to have the same heterosis, that that hybrid vigor that you can get when you cross two individuals that are really not related. Um, that weeds out all of the potential sort of inbreeding depression. Um, it weeds out all the deleterious recessive alleles. And, and the more you sort of cross back into the population, um yeah you can start sort of popping up those deleterious recessives more frequently but to a certain extent it, you know as you go through time i mean it's inbreeding I mean, that's what you're essentially dealing with the, the same sort of phenomena uh it takes a few generations before you'd really start to to accumulate significant impacts of that um and, before you, you know, get the extra thumb and the clawed feet <laughs> no comment <laughs> with plants i mean they, they do this with corn all the time they take stuff like f6 f7 and then like that company i was talking about earlier they advertise hybrids so they take those f6 f7s that are like runs you wouldn't want to grow it on itself but it's specifically they probably use genetic testing to isolate like this one has uh 
the highest sucrose production, or this one is the most, you know, uh, yield or whatever. It's it actually is. in the, in the, yeah, those, the parents, the peas in most corn breeding, um, aren't sort of very vigorous plants, but they have known traits from sort of healthier offspring, but yeah, they, they're bred, they're selfed, usually they're S7s, um, like you're talking about, and then they're crossed. So you take two different S7s and cross them to get that F1. And that F1... That's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a hell of a lot of work. But getting those two S7s crossed, that F1 is almost guaranteed to be heterozygotic for like everything. So it will have no deleterious recessive alleles just for that one generation though. And that's what they do in, in cord seed breeding. They keep those parents and they keep crossing. Because your F2s will suck. Parents to grow your F2s them. will not be you know, uh, anywhere close to uniform and their yield is going to be less typically. Like if, if a corn breeder was to want to save their seed, which is actually illegal in most of the US because of unfortunate regulations that I want to get into. But um, that's not true. Okay, well, from what I understood, there's some licensing agreements that farmers have signed with Pacific feed breed, seed breeders not to do that, but it's not sort of against the law. It might be a violation of their contract. But That's unless more likely you sign that contract, it doesn't apply to you. And most of these farmers can't necessarily afford the farms that they're on. They're in deep, you know, loans. Uh, not to generalize, so a lot of farmers do own their farms, but many of them are, you know, le have liens against them because they have expensive tractors and farm equipment. That it they're does trying happen. To pay off. Yeah. And so they get into these situations where they're kind of two hands tied behind their back, and then they have to sign this contract with the company. Or worse yet, like their neighbor pollinates their stuff, and then they I can't don't think you need to make it sound so nefarious, Jack. I mean, people choose to sign those contracts, which are it's like you choosing to sign a lease agreement to get a car or something i mean you recognize that you're giving up some rights but you're getting other benefits in terms of doing this and you choose the right company that you want to sign that agreement with you, you get your car that way um they, they farmers are making those decisions and that the seed market is pretty twisted i'm not making that argument but they're, they're not sort of getting bent over a barrel to sign the agreements in the first place farmers for years i mean for generations have been planting hybrid corn in the United States. Farmers haven't been saving their corn seeds for generations. So th this isn't a new thing either. Yeah, even I was gonna say some of the like, cause when uh, we were doing the food garden over here, I'm like, yeah, I'll just take the seeds out of the food that we eat, the vegetables we get. And those don't work like that either. Some of them anyway, I've been told. Yeah, so, like I got yeah, blood orange same seeds. Exact thing. It might yeah. not grow into a blood orange tree, weird enough. <laughs> that's yeah, that's true. very true. That's the Achilles heel of hybrid breeding and, and the whole hybridization yeah. is that you can't see the seeds. If you open pollinate breeding, if you do basically what a lot of cannabis breeders do it that they don't really know that they're doing, when you're breeding stability by going to F7, right? And you're saying like, it's getting more stable as I'm going through this and you're it's getting better and I'm getting sort of less phenotypic variation because I've done careful selections to get down to F7. That's a style of breeding where growers can save those seeds, you know, create their own seeds and have pretty much the same plants that, that you know, they bought the seeds from. Um, and most of the cannabis that we're growing, you know, if you cross it with other cannabis plants, you're going to have a, a seed that's about the same quality as the original sort of hybrid mix was. Um, but as the hybridization process gets better, the hybrid seeds become sort of more potent than the other seeds and that the potency of those F1 seeds 
man, farmers are willing to pay for those F1 seeds because they pop, they're, they're more consistent, they're more vigorous, and they don't want to save their own seeds every year because the, the hybrid seeds sort of grow better than any kind of open pollinating varieties could. Even uh, in early cannabis, we saw this with like the early seed banks. It was like for a long time, people were trying to grow stuff from Mexican sativas in the US and they couldn't because they didn't finish fast enough. Well, then what came along? Afghani. Afghani was the big hybrid that was crossed into Thai, Mexican, Colombian, all these really long flowering, big, huge, tall, thin leafed plants that people could never get to finish uh, or were a hassle to grow indoors were now cut in half or a third of the size and the flowering time dropped several weeks off of it. And I think that we really saw those and like even Kyle Breeder, who's not with us tonight. Um, I think he's celebrating a birthday. So happy birthday, Kyle. Um, but he has a, a couple strains that take really dissimilar land races and then cross them together. And you can see not necessarily that he bred it to the F7 or whatever, but he took stuff that was so uh, uniform throughout its nature of, you know, maybe it was passed down from 10 generations of people in a certain area, or maybe it was just left alone to open pollinate itself for decades in a certain area and people just collected that but uh, when you work with those types of things it can be amazing the similar type of heterosis i think he even has a strain called heterosis because uh he saw compared to all of his other stuff this one was just like crazy from the jump i guess because they're so unrelated and a lot of stuff that we have is kind of lower quality hybrids in the fact that they're not really unrelated because it's like there's a cookie and there's an og and there's a chem in like all of them so yeah. They're all like uh, somebody, uh, I think it was Ethos Colin, calls them like kissing cousins or something. They're yeah, all sort so of. There's a little bit more inbreeding depression there, right? Um, you could still self them out and, and at least get the, the, the pea plants to be more homozygotic. So you could, and this is what Tao I think said would be a lot of work, but self a, plant, a cannabis plant like six or seven times um just keep back crossing it keep back crossing it to itself um and what you're essentially doing is is destroying the opportunity for heterozygosity and everything's going to end up being homozygotic it's, it may not be a very healthy or happy plant but it'll be a homozygotic plant and the exciting part happens when you cross it with another homozygotic plant um and create a plant that's perfectly heterozygotic it's that heterozygosity that leads to heterosis which is the hybrid vigor um we can still do that pretty much with cannabis even if there is some you know relations by doing that selfing process to it but it's going to become a you know a big mystery about getting it right about having chosen the sort of right individuals to go through that selfing and crossing them with the right ones um somebody makes a fire strain that way though they can take over the cannabis world I agree with that. And uh, CSI Humboldt is one of the people trying it as well as like archive. He's like S1, S2, and he, he says there's like a lot of herms and then um, sterility when he gets to S3, like uh, pistolless cannabis and, and stuff that produces seeds, but the seeds are non-viable. It's like stethanocarpy and parthenocarpy. Or something. Are they still non-viable when you cross them to another unrelated species? That, that, I don't think so. But it, that's that, the moment. You, yeah, some some species you will never be able to, or some individuals you can't self them out seven times because they'll end up with some homozygotic trait that's, that's lethal. Um, that's a great point. Basically, yeah, that definitely happens. And well, and somebody tried to do that for a while. 
they were calling him Dr. Frankenbean. It was like Sam the Skunk Man or whatever. He was going to try and do that so that people had to like buy seed every time or whatever because uh, he was going to try and make something that couldn't breed past F1, essentially. Yeah, there's just that whole thing, man. From a breeder's perspective, it's possible to make seeds that are are so good that people will choose to buy them every time. And, and that's absolutely what's happened over and over again in the history of horticulture and agriculture. I think it's happening now in cannabis. The best breeders... Farmers being forced to buy seeds or, or far, you know, I mean, farmers are choosing to because those are better plants and they're willing to spend the whatever it is to get the seed in the upfront because they're going to be a, a better, more consistent plant in the back end. I agree with that. And I've seen it with like even the early stages of the cannabis market. Like I would say there's 40 breeders right now that are doing amazing work, consistent stuff. They've been around for roughly a decade or more, and they have strains that you can go look up their description, buy a pack of it, and it's going to smell, taste and look like what you expect which is kind of like when you go buy a tomato and it says, you know, give it X amount of whatever, and you're going to get this type of tomato and it's going to taste and yield and, and look like a certain way. Um, so CSI Humble is another person who I think is, he, I was just talking about him a second ago with the S1s, but um, he also has like IBL lines that he's described. He does open pollination. So he takes all the males and all the females from a line that he was given. I think in this case, it was like um, the pine tar kush. I think it was given to him from uh, Tom Hill. And so to preserve it, he just let it cross into itself generation after generation after generation for however many times he felt to stabilize it. And so I have a pack of those seeds, for example, but every time I try to grow them, they're way less vigorous and veg than everything else. And they're just not uh, as happy. So what I think I should do is just grab one of those, either a male or a female, and then cross it to something like my velvet punch and then cross see the what the offspring That's what everybody does. does. That's a, speaking of cookies, I don't know. They, <laughs> they, they're in some hot water right now. Like they just had a, in thailand a shop opening with no product because at the last second uh burner tried to pull the rug on the grower and say oh the quality is not good enough so we're only going to pay you x amount of dollars per pound and the guy said oh you man. know where you can go and so they literally opened up a shop with nothing and another note they just shut down their oklahoma store so cookies is uh definitely heaven they're previously looked at as like this uh you know elite multi-state operator and a lot of people i think looked at them with a lot of high respect and regard because they've been doing well for a long time but it shows that uh everybody is fallible we can have our losses and failures and uh they're just one of the other people that is now struggling in this current very difficult legal cannabis market across many states and countries ain't that a fact on a happier note, because I hate to just shit on people, but I, I do because they sold moldy ass weed to, I didn't even buy it, but my buddy bought some and gifted it to me from cookies and got my wife very sick. Matthew and I actually smoked and we're fine, but it's still garbage. And I I guess I hold a little bit of a grudge. It could happen to anybody, but I, I don't like burner and cookies for other reasons. But on a positive note, uh, we were talking earlier about runs. I said that my platinum Yeti F3 turned out to be a really good plant. Tao is like the king of keeping plants alive that he probably should have killed. So Tao, <laughs> has any of those plants turned out to be something amazing have you had a, a runt that you're like oh damn thank god i kept this it was the fire well no but well definitely a couple that were better than the rest but they weren't good enough to keep so you know in that respect i would say yeah i do have a that the one is definitely a very low lower yielder but the weed is so good so i keep it around but it's not a runt it's healthy and everything i probably could tweak the growing uh to really pump up the yield on that one and yeah that's the other thing if you have you know certain strains you could adjust the the structure of the plant to uh produce more for you even if it's not a natural heavy duty producer you know 
because uh, yeah, they make like skinny, it's a skinny buds, so I could put them closer together and not worry about much, you know, like so. Top it more so it has more bud sites and right, so it has ends up yielding a little bit more. Right next, yeah, yield a little more, and I, yeah, but I, like <clears throat> that's why I think breeding is a good. If you have a plant that you really like, that's a little low yielder, you could try crossing it into something that's bigger, or even if you just cross it into something that's different, it might have that heterosis. Yeah, that sounds about right. It, it might have that hybrid vigor, which could improve things. So it's a tool. I mean, you can yeah. see something like, oh, like a forum cut Girl Scout cookies is a really low yielder, but a lot of people like the flavor and the potency. So then that cut got bred into a lot of With other everything. Stuff. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to say is when we talk about runs, because someone said in chat, yeah, a lot of times the runt is like the most powerful or best tasting, but that's a run because of like genetically, not because you're feeding up the plant and not giving it its full potential, you know? So, oh yeah, yeah different, different things. It's yeah. not, it's not cultivator in, in uh, induced uh, runtism. Yeah. Right. It's not because yeah. you it <laughs> or, or underlit it or <laughs> hit it in the corner or something like that. Right. What about you, Noah? Have you had uh, any plants that were either genetically runty or maybe it just, it could be cultivator error. Like maybe we gave a little too much EC or too much water and maybe got the roots weren't off to a good start or like a bad transplant, but then that plant just came back with a vengeance. Has it happened to you in your experience at all? Oh, of course. You know, it's every, every scenario you've been growing as long as I have, you're going to find, but I will say that you guys are right, that the healthiest plants are going to give you the best buds and the best everything. But I'll tell you what, Actually, this last harvest, I had something weird. I had two of the exact same plant from the exact same clone, and I was putting it in my net, and I was it was late at night. I was tired. I've been working. And I put it in, and I snapped the main stalk on the plant. I was so pissed. And I was, and I was like, oh, man, that's gonna, that plant's going to suck. That plant, the exact same, they're both apple fritter lumpies cut, and that plant, the buds on it were way better. It deal deal a little bit less. But I thought that was really weird. It was almost to that stress thing. I literally just, this just happened to me. And I was watching it the whole time. The leaves were greener. And it took a little while at first. Like and it, it grew that knot thing and everything. But it, I mean, it took off. And it, it, it the weed is way better. I haven't had a chance to smoke it. I just harvested it yesterday. But man, it, it looks and smells way better. So it's really, it was kind of a weird experience. I just, I'm just going through that right when now. When was it injured? uh day one of flip from to uh to twelve twelve, like like when i was from taking from my bedroom to my flower room gotcha. i snapped the main okay. stock on it like and i taught my plants once but it was the main one of the two and it it was it, it just the whole thing was destroyed literally like half the plant did I it just at the same time that the rest of the, of the crop did or was everything it was the same everything was everything the same, was the same. Yeah, and they, the, I, I, fe I fed bull plants off the exact same gallon of nutrients. Everything was the same. The same clone, same day, same, same mother, everything. So it was a really weird experience. That yeah. I, I just experienced this. So I, I do actually think that physical abuse is a little bit easier for the plants to tolerate sometimes than chemical abuse. But sure. That's still that's a pretty sensitive time. I'm not sure that I'd recommend doing that. No, here. no, right. no. I was no, not an SOP, but it's one of those right. things. Right. When but if someone said to you, "You're gonna you're gonna have to have a fucking damage to the main stock of your plant," what day of flower do you want? I'm gonna say one. 
I'm going to say day one because sure. <laughs> it gives me the I, longest go, time to recover. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd probably <laughs> go like day four or five, maybe. Let them get used to the 12 12 lighting schedule. The and day of harvest. Break them. Yeah. Or the day <laughs> of harvest. A good, that's a good Jack one. Jack wins. <laughs> yeah, go, Jack. That's, the, that's the best answer right there, Jack. That's the best answer. Jack wins. But yeah, ideally, I think it, I've talked about this in the past with super cropping, even when I got a really good knuckle at the right time. Yeah. I just. It could be in my mind, but like sometimes it just it's so much frostier just visually side by side. Like one is coated in a cloud of sugar and then the other one is just like just fully tricked out. And then the one next to it, it looks good still, but it's just not quite as good. Now, um, on the same plant, I've often thought that this may just be the plant prioritizing the injury, basically. So like a lot of growers will say, you know, I super cropped one cola and it ended up being like a much bigger cola than this like other branch that I didn't super crop. And I'm like, yeah, you kind of forced the plant to send a bunch of energy to that, that branch because it had to deal with an injury and it got sort of the focus of a lot more sort of the, the photosynthate. It's interesting because it's like, just like with people, it has unforeseen consequences. Like when I had uh, fractured my spine the first time, I thought I had a pulled muscle and I kept, I was at the time playing basketball a lot. And the trainer was like, oh, you just have a pulled muscle. It's just a tight muscle, heat and ice. You'll, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. And it turned out I had a fractured spine and the muscle was tightening to protect the spine. And the plant in this case is like using that energy instead of like a muscle tightening. It's uh, sending whatever uh, compartmentalization of decay in trees is like one way I've heard it described uh, by an agriculturalist. I don't know if that applies to cannabis, but like there's trees where people will like put a shovel into it and you can come back and it grows completely around it. Or like they cut holes out of it and people can drive a car through it and plants have amazing ways to deal with it and uh, get around that stuff. But I don't necessarily think like, again, probably not an SOP type strategy. Like I'm going to do this every time, but if, and when it happens, it's not like we have to kill the plant right away because, Oh, the world's over. But it feels like that when you snap your plant in half, especially on like you had a great veg, big, healthy, beautiful plant. You're just bending it up into that scrog and you, like you've done hundreds of times, you know, you're going to go get your stuff ready to flip the flower and then boom, like, like, Oh God, how's this going to turn out? Yeah. It was a trip from those kinds of injuries, man, like remarkably well. Um, It's pretty impressive. I think because if we did that to like our necks, I think we always sort of liken it to our own spine. You know, like if I broke my main cord like that, I'd be like paraplegic for the rest of my life. But like, um no if the roots are happy and like the upper part of the plant is still happy and healthy and doing what it wants to do and the roots are doing what they want to do that plant's going to do whatever it can to kind of connect the two of those pieces together um and even if it's just kind of like hanging on by a thread if you protect that thread for a few days it'll sort of stocking itself up I just saw somebody usually, who harvested a plant and they didn't even know. Plants in the end. I mean, usually it does sort of come out in the the, the final scale. Someone I saw harvested their plant and they didn't even know that it had split until they, like uh, somewhere along the line, maybe the buds, like it, they did a main line and it got too wide and it split and then nev- they never pushed it back together or did anything to like protect it. But it just, the air around it, it scabbed right up, healed right up and finished with basically like a giant V in the middle of the main stalk. And like Doc is saying, like the plant is amazingly resilient and uh, having the ability to recover through that. We do have a couple questions, but I'm curious if uh, Spartan Grown or Doc, if you yourself have had any good runs before we get to these good questions. Um, the best example I can think of, well, two is um, Mac One, if you didn't know it, you'd think it was a runt in veg. 
because the veggies were so slow, but it really shows out in flower. And then uh, the most recent one for me would be cobra milk. Actually, Fino hunted my pack of cobra milk because I had like five seeds. Uh, I Fino hunted that at work when I was still at Mitenkanico. And the one that they immediately wanted to, to get rid of was the shortest one, the shortest, stockiest one, <clears throat> what we consider the runt. Because in a commercial setting, what we were growing, we we're growing tall, pretty tall plants. And uh, they want to have the size to fill in the nuts. But when I went through every plant and did stem rubs on it in early flower and the smells I was getting, I was like, oh, 100%, I want that run. <laughs> and uh, I took a cut of that and brought it home. And uh, well, we'd already had cuts of each one, but I took a cut of that home <clears throat> that they were just going to throw all up. And I'm glad I did because I really like it. And a lot of other people like it too. I'm glad you kept it. It's inspired me to uh, want to try that strain myself. I want to get a pant pack and do some pheno hunting. I love the uh, milk crosses personally, but uh, that seems to be a, a good one. And I'm glad that you found a pheno that you like. Yeah, I gifted it to uh, Fergroli, and he's making cobra milk concentrate now. That's awesome. Yeah, it's fucking awesome. Shout out to Fergroli. He does great work by all accounts. He has amazing flavor. How did it come through? uh compared Very, to your own it came out it was so funny because the best way i can describe it is the experience i had with my son i cracked open i was telling him i said uh because obviously he smokes my flower but i was like hey uh my buddy for girly made some uh concentrate out of cobra milk he was you brought in some cobra milk for him i'm like no he actually grew it i, I gave him a cut of the plant he grew it himself and he made the concentrate fresh frozen I said, check this out. And I cracked open the jar and I had him smell it. And his eyes get all big. He goes, this smells just like cobra milk. And I was like, well, duh, what do you think? Sometimes it doesn't turn out like that, though. It's cool yeah. that uh, you guys must have done something similar enough or that strain, just the genetic expression is strong. Like Gorilla Glue Floor, I've seen it in hydro, organic, and everything in between. And it always comes out pretty gluey and fire. Yeah. Yeah. Doc, have you had any runs at all that uh, turned out? Because it seems like you are also an advocate of not uh, wanting to keep those kind of smaller or unhealthier or just slower growing plants. I mean, I've definitely had run, uh, runs, like plants that that just didn't sort of perform as well as I wanted them to. Or sometimes it's been operator error, grower error, or not sort of being on top of things as much as I should be. Um, or doing something weird like growing them in a in a party cup or something like that right like we do every once in a while but um and you know every once in a while like the last harvest i had like i didn't do a great job with the grow i'd gotten like so sort of behind schedule with everything in the grow i never got automatic watering set up i was sort of I went out of town and let them dry back. There's a good example um, for like four days without watering. Um, did, just did some ill-advised things. And, you know, the plants were not as as sort of vigorous. That's the kind of sort of abuse that I'm thinking of more in terms of like runs don't produce. And they didn't. I mean, it's decent, but I'm, I know they would have been better if I had both in sort of quality and quantity if I had done a little bit better with them and it wasn't sort of a dumpster fire but like it could have been better um and in other situations yeah where you have one plant that's sort of like for whatever reason either you know something happened to it during training or transplanting or it just was you know genetically different or whatever um if it's growing slower than the other ones and, and sort of not 
not keeping up generally they get pushed in my tent like there's a, a competition for space so the plants that do grow well will sort of like push into the territory of the plant that's not growing well um and yeah those those plants that don't sort of defend their territory none of them sort of like harken back is is like the the top flower producers you know what i mean the the top quality producers and, and fortunately i think that you know going through when i grow like four plants or six plants it's almost always the plant that yields the most is the plant that i like the most um it, you know it's the one i end up with the most of which is is sort of nice the way that works out because it's a good problem to have so to speak yeah it would be bad if it was like the you know the one you only got the least of was like always the the one that you like the most but um yeah those are my thoughts on that i think those are all good points and uh i think it sort of highlights between like a genetic runt and like when we just know we're not doing our best as a gardener and like we could get it to a higher potential if maybe we weren't on vacation or we didn't have these things right. like if you had automated automated watering set up from the start like you're traditionally used to right. uh i think for those who don't know like you went through a move before this grow and so it was uh you know getting things set up it can be difficult the first time around and like anybody you're still kind of getting adjusted and so it's not going to be 100 percent perfect the first time you do it and it, that's part of the learning process and i think that's what makes it fun because even as like somebody who I think many people on this panel, whether or not they'd call themselves this, would qualify as an expert, whether it was like they had to give testimony or how people look at us because we produce content about this particular topic for 200 plus episodes or whatever. But um, it's just interesting because uh, every single grow presents its own unique challenges, like a piece of equipment might break or you'll have a really weird weather phenomenon where maybe it's raining a bunch in your area where it doesn't typically rain a bunch. And now you're like, how am I going to deal with all this extra RH? And uh, or just extremely cold temperatures in a time of year where it's not typically cold and things like that. So there's a lot to overcome. And I'm glad that as good yeah. as all of us might be, we can all admit that we have our struggles and not every grow is our very best grow. So it's uh, it's this plant humbles us and teaches us all the time. It takes a, a lot of effort, to be honest with you. I mean, sort of, I know when I've had really good grows, right? I, I think I know what to do to have a really good grow. But sometimes I don't have the time or the effort or the patience or whatever it is at that particular moment. Um, and I always admire growers that sort of always consistently turn out great home grows. Uh, people that are running multiple tents and people that are, you know, as their sort of home grow hobby um, because it's a, it's a dedication. I mean, keeping all that stuff going, it, different in a commercial sense when it's like your job. And, you know, some of these home growers may be doing it somewhat as a job too, but it, there's there's work. And I also try to keep, cut myself some slack when I'm busy and I can't do everything perfectly in the garden. I'm like, you know, the plants are going to survive too. Yeah, it's amazing how even on our not best grows, we can get a good amount of really dank flower despite not doing everything so perfect so it's a happy medium of trying our best uh, Noah the grower always inspires me I have a clip on my Instagram of he's like you know the best growers are the hardest workers when it's time to clone you clone when it's time to transplant you transplant and every time I hear that in my head and I like stay to it I'm just like crushing it and when I get lazy and I, I don't uh, abide by that the, the plants definitely slow down and don't yield as much and might uh, become vulnerable to either nutrient deficiencies or well, maybe too little water or too much water and things like that. Just trying just to lack of get to it when you can. Yeah, exactly. Just the lack of consistency when things start 
you got to stay on top of everything to really like growing, following my style, at least you want to kind of stay on top of everything and make sure, you know, things aren't getting out of whack. And like, just thinking back, I remember several times when it was like time to go to bed. I'd be like, oh shit, I have mixed nudes and I need to water the plants and I'm just, I'm going to do it in the morning. It's like, that's not a good decision to make. We never wake up and say, oh, thank goodness that I pushed it off till the next morning. That's right. For sure. But it happens. And sometimes you literally just don't have the energy. Like there's some nights where I came home and I was so physically exhausted from work. I just laid down and passed out, like could not tend to any garden. So I completely understand the, the balance of that. And yeah. uh, Matt, Matthew, I'm curious. I know um, whether in your own personal garden or in a commercial setup, I'm curious if you've had any experiences with runs, be it cannabis or other plants, stuff that maybe started off slow or maybe for one reason or another. Your garden wasn't going perfectly, but it uh, overcame it and maybe uh, just a notable memory of that type. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know that I've had experiences like this before, certainly like in a commercial setting, like uh, like in propagation, for example, it'll happen. You know, I remember doing a trial with a hemp grower and they were trying, they had some sort of an issue they were trying to figure out if it was like their media or something was happening and it ended up being, or, I mean, we didn't know conclusively, but we were pretty sure that the main problem was that um, they, they just, the problem they had was that they were in a greenhouse setup that was like built in the (laughs) seventies. And so it wasn't really, there was a lot of like idiosyncrasies about like airflow and like, sunlight getting in there at the right time and everything like that what they found out was that they were just overwatering, which is so easy to do because the hemp seedlings well not seedlings but plugs basically um they were i mean they were just getting too much water and some of them were just rotting like you know like the roots were just like getting too much water they were dying they're succumbing to all kinds of problems through that process um but it's so hard because this is in Southern California where the sun, you know, beats down very heavily. So the pro- they really had trouble. This isn't really, again, this is like not a genetics thing. This was just an operator problem, right? An ID10T problem. And so the issue is that they're so small and the substrate was so miniature and they had them in trays. So the sun came out and they would dry them out really quickly. So they ca- they had to find a way to like moisten them enough that they could get enough moisture that the plants would survive but not too much that they would die and it was just so difficult for them to do and yeah so that's my story about a stunt so these plants were stunted right that's how i fits with the story i guess and eventually those plants were pretty nice um very vigorous growth i love um i know it's not the part of the growth that a lot of people like to really worry about honestly one of the things i love about cannabis is how like um like woody and vigorous it it gets it's it it grows so fast and some of these and this is hemp right so some of these plants were just so like i don't know what to say they have this like um aesthetic to them you know kind of like lumber almost and yeah so like they just shot up like once we were able to get a little bit better of a um of a watering regimen um, down, they were, it was a success story after that, but it was really hard going. And it's like hundreds of plants and a lot of them just had to be thrown away. Um, and there were some other pest issues and things like that, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard out there when you're trying to do these things on mass. And you know, again, a lot of times 
like people will often say, well, if you have the perfect conditions or you make these really great context, then it's fine. And that's true, admittedly, in a lot of cases. But a lot of times people are not inheriting a perfect scenario, either because you're being hired and you're in this ecosystem, this historical system that existed before you. Like, and like I said, you know, they're growing in an old greenhouse. There were tears and rips and it wasn't very well isolated from the environment and some of the workers were not really the most experienced and you know there's just a, a cavalcade of, of problems but that's the real scenario that a lot of people cultivate under especially in a commercial setting and it's not just like one or two of your buddies and even if it were that has that comes with its own limitations as well not only um you know in capacity but also like in your ability to maybe collaborate, um, which maybe gives you some insight into my own personal opinions about, I love working with friends, but uh, my personal friends, you know, it's very, it's hard sometimes for people to make professional decisions. I guess I'll leave it at that. That's a good point. I think the hemp note was also interesting. Cannabis can also be, it's incredible how light, but also um, strong it can be. Like it, I grew up playing baseball and like a wooden baseball bat is fairly heavy. And like a equivalent sized bat of like a hemp stalk would be extremely light, but it's still extremely hard. It's almost like a bamboo or something, you know, where it's just like the, the woodiness of it and aggressive growth is impressive when you're around it, especially like when you're there a few days a week or if you go there and then you go back a week later and you see like, wow, they're a foot taller and they're just way more branches and everything. It's a wild how when it's healthy, it can really grow extremely fast and, and strong. Yeah, I know. It's like bamboo. I know a lot of people have said this as well, but like it definitely just feels like it's palpable and you can see it almost daily. And, um, you know, I, I love those ruderal type species of plants where they just like eke out an existence in the asphalt or like, you know, you go on a hike. Like I've been hiking in places around San Diego, like Mission Trails, for example. And because of all the rains, it's so much more verdant and green it's it's exceptional and when the sun goes down and you're in the valley it gets cool and it's like it just got this um refreshing feeling that is hard to get usually uh in this part of the in this neck of the california desert it's weird so, our, our ecosystem has definitely changed with this heavy bit of rain we've been getting these past few months everything is so lush and green and like you're just saying that it even makes so we're having like higher uh, humidity or moisture and like in the evening times we're getting like dew and things that like you wouldn't typically have as much of or any like in certain times where it's like your feet get soaking wet just walking through a patch of grass where typically here it's like bone dry or dying a lot of the season so hopefully it doesn't uh, all dry out and nasty become fires for years though. i mean this is definitely a wetter winter but i mean i think we're comparing it to a pretty dry stretch of of years right yeah, oh, for sure. I'm I'm happy that we're getting it. Yeah, no. Thankful. No. We need it for great. sure. It's like, wow, outdoors is a lot greener than it used to be around here. My only worry is that it doesn't sustain typically. So we get it for like a little bit. And then when it gets lush and green, then it all dies off. And then our fires are oh, even worse. Yeah. yeah, it's not. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And, you know, like the fire ecology could not suck so much. And we could have some prescribed burns or something. Because when we let it all build up, the oils and everything, it gets too hot and even the fire adapted plants will die. Some of these plants out here, um, 
you know, infamously, I think tor the Tory pines are are such a plant where they require some fire exposure, some sort of heat exposure in order to actually germinate. Or just a, like we used to have a $54 million budget in California for clearing the dead forest, and they got cut to $2 million when uh, Governor Jerry Brown was in office. So $52 million less, and we've had the worst wildfires ever since then. So I think a combination of like doing controlled burns and also paying people to go out there and clean up all these dead trees really and been hard on oh yeah it's not a one solution problem for sure i told i, I agree that it probably wasn't even enough money in the first place the, right. but that's well, just that being speculation said, i don't want to get so california and non-cannabis specific because uh we have a pretty international audience and we have a great question from uh vpd grows some booth says at cheap home grow when and where would a product like hygrozyme be used is that like hydroguard and this was earlier in like the kind of uh, roots questions uh or, or roots product conversation earlier anybody have any thoughts on hygrozyme has anybody or hydrozyme i should say has anyone used that any thoughts about it well, i'm think, forgetting what it's composed of yeah so i don't know exactly the constituents that, the name kind of gives it away that it's an enzyme so it's yeah like, like a slf 100 almost or yes. one of those other general enzyme products that people will typically use in like cloners uh maybe a little X amount of milliliters per gallon to pr promote like a healthier root zone is how I typically see them marketed. Uh, HydroGuard is the other product that they're comparing it to. So maybe it's a silicone or sil silicon product of some sort. HydroGuard, I think, HydroGuard is, beneficial is beneficial bacteria. bacteria. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe I was thinking of like Rhino. So hydro. A lot of these products are like very similar <laughs> in phrasing. Yeah, uh, yeah. So the biohydro. Yeah. A live bacteria that you're adding and then um hydrozyme is more uh, an enzyme so think of breaking things down kind of enzymes are usually used to break things down yeah well, how do any plants grow out in the wilderness without nobody coming around with bottles for them a lot of them don't ah good point yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean <laughs> less facetiously i mean many of them are growing like like the rainforest right there's plenty of uh stuff that there's competition and and a lot of natural resources that are already there but when it gets cleared out and you're starting with a barren land for example you've got to give it something plants can't grow with nothing like yeah. they can grow in pretty That's poor soils true. but they grow a lot better in rich soils and the there's point of horticulture there's ecology in the poor soil it's not really very poor but i mean if there's enough ecology there and like a rainforest situation it's that ecology that's helping to provide all that that sort of is needed it's not just sitting in a state ready to be used by the plants so yeah. like a yeah have they figured out any more about like the whole terra prada thing was that people in the amazon actually like putting like biochar into the soil or was that a natural consequence of forest burns and and like they have that rich, really dark black soil. I think it's called Terra Preta or Terra Prada. Or yeah, Terra like Preta or Terra Prada. Yeah. I but, don't know anything extra from what I've read before. So maybe there's some new information I'm not aware of. My understanding is that that's, that is the idea is that like there's been a, um, a concerted human influence. Yeah. But, you know, some people go ahead and say that like it's all big. Like, I don't know if you could really say that the entirety of the Amazon rainforest it's you know human facility like completely for human facilitated i think that uh predates us right so that would be yeah, a question for like, doc because that's more of like a anthrop 
Prological question. question. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we have an impact on it. So at what point does the impact that we have on the environment become like, you know, terraforming? Um, I don't know. When yeah. you look at some some of these growers' houses, man, their kitchen, their, their master bedroom, the living room, all have marijuana plants growing in them. I love to see that. <laughs> that that's terror. <laughs> they terraformed the whole house into a jungle. You could have a... People have houses have inside of a hill. greenhouse. I love that, like the setup. It lessens like the heating costs. So, like I think it was on like Iceland or somewhere. Somebody built a big glass greenhouse around their actual home, and they grow a bunch of food yes, and stuff that wouldn't that. naturally happen. So, I mean, we're we're pretty agriculture and horticulture are both literally like breaking away from nature and like yeah. doing the best we can to uh, make them perform better in certain settings right yeah and even gathering you know type of activities or clearing different species out um like hunting all sorts of things that, that we do is going to have an impact you know like a beaver isn't trying to create a lake necessarily they're just trying to create a, a safe entrance to their den um and they end up like you know flooding an entire valley like you know, does it have to be your goal to do that in order for that to be sort of the consequence? But yeah, no, I think that the, the rainforest in the Amazon, if that's what the question is, would look very different if humans had never existed in, in that area. I mean, unrecognizably different, but at the same time, it, it's, you know, at least the wild parts of it are still like not totally dependent on human cultivation or human you know humans in engaging in, in their reproduction or a, a necessary part of the reproduction which is sort of a necessary part of the definition of any horticultural or agricultural system is that humans are necessary to the reproduction of that system year over year or through time that's um, a great point i think it's yeah uh, i mean go ahead what I was going to say, like, there's this concept, you know, when people want to say this is unnatural or whatever, but I think that belies a, a great misunderstanding because. Yeah, I have a hat. Niche, it's called, it's, <laughs> it's, sorry, it's called it's niche part of nature on the front of my hat because it's like people would say that I'm like, we're, we're part of nature, too. We have to sort yeah, of wrestle with those consequences, but humans are, are part of nature. Well, and whether uh, the fire is caused ants. by humans or or nature, like a lightning strike, or it's because a cigarette was flicked into the forest, it causes right. a forest fire. And then there's no agriculture many times or we horticulture. Have more control over some stuff of just grows things. back, though, after a fire. Volcanoes, stuff grows great in volcanic soil. Like something about fire some stuff, and yeah. death brings yeah. new life, to, though, without human to interaction. Play, to play devil's advocate, we're doing things that aren't naturally innate to our... Uh, you know, we don't, we don't, we're not born wanting to plant seeds and kill other plants, right? Um, like instinctually, no, it's definitely, yeah. no, no, no. We're, I'm, we're, I'm we're not, true. We're I'm really not I was born wanting to plant seeds. Yeah. If we there, were there, it's called to, niche. In ecology, we call it niche construction. It has to be in your instincts in order for it to be quote unquote natural. Then like there's there's a whole lot of behavior that's not natural. And I don't know that that's a really workable definition. The thing is, is that, uh, yeah, it's just, it's niche construction. Like animals have been doing it for a long time. Like I, uh, I can't remember the exact phrase, but um, basically there was this big revolution in like the evolution of animals where once animals started digging, 
that changed the whole paradigm. That changed everything. Once, once you had like multicellular organisms out in the marine layer, you know, that would like dig because there would be microbial mats and basically they'd go in and they'd disrupt all of that. And there's been a bunch of times in nature, in nature, where like we didn't start off having oxygen in the atmosphere, <laughs> you know? So right. like how, I mean, how, how separate are we from that development, you know? I think there's still certain things that are pretty close to nature. A bunch of pollution. Yeah, but, you know, and created all that oxygen that that allowed sort of us to exist here. But at the same time, I think that those those (laughs) ways of thinking make it seem like any reckless decision that we make is perfectly fine because, like, other things have been more reckless. I'm not as reckless as that volcano or whatever, but I, I think that we probably should make more responsible decisions than that in terms of, like, we really can impact these things. So we really can make decisions that have lasting impacts on the, the ecosystems and, and the climate that we in, interact with. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely not advocating wow, for microplastics in your bloodstream, right? So what's that? I said, I'm definitely not advocating for say microplastics in your bloodstream, for example. Well, I mean, that's the world we're living in, though. Even though that's not a recurring event, yeah. Yeah, that's what you were kind of talking about, right, Ted? Yeah, yeah. Right, just because it's natural. See, this is the problem. People draw this distinction. There's natural, and then there's artificial. And natural is good, and artificial is bad. And frankly... I hesitate sometimes because I realize I'm about to say fighting huh. words, but that's the, that is the polarity that animates a lot of organic gardening. I think is that there's sort of a natural versus an artificial, and the natural is good, and the artificial is bad. And I just think it's more complicated than that. A little bit, yeah. It's yeah, not a thin line; people. it's a very fat line. It's very hazy at both sides of that line. Yeah, and that's not really the the useful distinction in a lot of situations. Um, and it's a really arbitrary distinction in a lot of situations, right? Um, so, to get back to sort of like, why is it better, or what does better mean, right? right. It's very and human go from there. Yeah, better for what, and in what case, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what does better mean and then how do we achieve better as opposed to just doing a categorical style thinking where you're like natural is better this is natural therefore this is better that's that's just sort of categorical thinking it's it's simple shortcuts through sort of analysis um actual analysis requires sort of like breaking it down and inter- interrogating it not just categorizing it i'll say that spartan said earlier he felt like he was born wanting to plant a seed I feel like one of the reasons I use cannabis is like, I've heard there's something called like a warrior gene. Maybe it's, there was like violence and aggression in my family for generations and generations, but I feel like I have like a underlying, uh, you know, sometimes anger and, and heat that like I, I'm quicker maybe to temper than some people and cannabis helps me not feel that way. And that's one of the reasons that I really enjoy it. So I think whether it's like maybe Spartan's family, we're all growing plants and many people I know come from families that yeah it's taught but like even if he was separated for some reason uh, or not even spartan in this example but if anybody was like from a family of farmer after farmer after farmer and then they get pushed off to the city or something like that and adopted into some non-farming family i think sometimes there's like something within i don't know if like that actually is, it might be hippy dippy or whatever but i think um certain stuff maybe it's like within your genetics like maybe they were uh a certain maybe shorter people are more well adapted to doing certain types of activities so 
they got into those activities because they were short and they like fit into these places and their hands were smaller and they worked better with fine things and something like that. But that could be a bad example because I'm a Spartan street gardener. But it's uh, I think that their level, maybe even a very very small level of like innate uh, stuff. But I think most of it is just taught and especially horticulture and agriculture and we continue to learn that's why we love shows like these is the education we continue to get better hopefully each week yeah. we have a, we have maybe a natural tendency to to want to learn certain things or to be fascinated by certain things and i certainly think that children display a fascination with plants um so if you have children in your life grow plants with them children love plants and growing plants and all that so um, to the same extent that like children love language we're not born with language but like language is a fundamental part of what it is to be a human being and being able to speak and communicate and use language is almost definitional to what it is to be a human being we're, we're not born with it but we're born with an interest in it we're born with a desire to learn it and and sort of like a fascination when it's in front of us and to be honest with you, I, I think we're born with as much fascination and interest in plants as, as we are probably with language. So to that point, we're like born to be farmers. Just to follow up with that, I'm always like a proponent of the Victory Garden and I'm not growing enough of my own food, but I always hear the stat like only 1% of Americans and probably 1% of the world at this point is growing their own food. And not it's something we can do pretty no, harm free. A lot of people in other countries are actually peasant farmers. Um so a, a much larger percentage of, you know, the, the quote unquote third world or the global south is engaged in agricultural production. It's still changing. I mean, urbanization is, is certainly sweeping, but it's still a much larger percentage than in the United States. But even here, like, I think uh, we think sometimes that we're like so modern and evolved. And like, sometimes we get away from the, the ways that the old ways that can be actually be very beneficial because people want to talk about like, the harm of where their food comes from and people will be like oh anti-meat and then the meat people will be like well actually when you do you know commercial agriculture there's stuff where you're killing animals whether it's bugs or rodents or birds or whatever else and it's like one of the least harm input ways of getting food for yourself and your family is to grow it yourself have a community garden do something where you can make your own compost you're controlling the inputs you're controlling the pesticides and other things like that and um i think in the u.s it is actually i think one percent or in and most of the gardeners and farmers are like over 50 years old so like doc said i just want to really advocate if you do have kids or no kids uh teaching them how to grow their own food and just plants in general um is an amazing thing to do because not enough people are doing it in the u.s and in modern times and i think it's even in other countries becoming uh as the world becomes more globalized uh you know certain areas produce a bunch of things like wheat and corn and it gets exported out like even places that formerly didn't get any of this stuff really imported in there are now getting it and becoming more part of the global supply chain so it's something i think that's worth uh, holding on to and, and continuing to advocate that people uh, learn about not just for cannabis as much as cannabis is a, a great thing to grow i think that learning other foods as well is uh, very important for all of us yeah i definitely feel and, and like that's kind of that's always been sort of a, an interesting um interaction like with for me like at this point i probably work with cannabis more than any other crop by far not probably but by far is this the case and yet you know i get a great sense of fulfillment with growing other kinds of plants too for textiles for food and that sort of a thing but you know there can be competition between that right like which crops are going to be you know important for certain things and 
there's of course a human element, a business element that comes into it. And yeah, without getting like political into the weeds of socio-political excitement, you know, it, it's like I talked about in a recent presentation, you know, there's hot powdery mildew and cannabis is very closely related and hot powdery mildew can get onto cannabis and hop. Well, when it, when it got into hop, it killed all the hop, uh, like in 1997 or something, it just destroyed. I think we talked about it earlier, massive, massive amounts of damage. So my question is for the cannabis growers, what are we going to do? I know this is going to sound very contentious, but what do they do for controlling hop? Because uh, hop powdery mildew, because in the past they had a quarantine and they were very controlled about what they allowed in because also there's a population on the East coast. And if that mating type populates in the West coast and they come together, they're going to transfer a bunch of resistance genes that makes them incredibly hard to deal with on the East coast. So there's this, so we know there's this ticking time bomb that's going to happen. And it's like all these people are trying to grow in like Oregon and Northern California. It's like, there's this conflict. And like, I don't want to say that people shouldn't be able to grow cannabis or anything, but um, at, the, at the other time, like some people think, oh, we should just grow it everywhere. Just like, just, just grow it everywhere. Don't overgrow the world, just put it all over the world. And it's like, ah, uh, you know, like planted at could, the police station, planted at the neighborhood, wherever, that, you know, people are there doing could that be some downsides to this. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, does that resonate? <laughs> you know, I feel like, well, even with just males, way. like if, if you just, there's regular seed out sure. there, right? So like, if I just gave it out irresponsibly to people that don't know what they're doing and they grew it outdoor, that's going to pollinate potentially, potentially, valuable to them medicine something that might if it gets pollinated be not the quality that they were expecting uh, with all the inputs and time and effort that they put into it um although i do think that pollinated bud can still be very good quality it's uh not what most people are looking for and it's a lot more effort to break down especially if you're a flower smoker not like a concentrate user so and on top of that what you were just warning of is like um we saw with hops that in the 90s i'm sure beer prices and stuff went up then i was not old enough and didn't drink alcohol at the time so uh didn't really you know hit home with me but anybody all the beer drinkers out there were probably like why the hell is you know beer so expensive because that's one of the primary things i'm sure made with hops and yeah, something similar yeah, absolutely can happen with cannabis although prices right now are on a pretty hard downward trend and doc has been saying this for literally for years on the show like yeah. it's the price of cannabis with legalization legalization is what's keeping the prices up and now that's becoming more and more legalized it's going to get closer and closer to the cost of agricultural products and the cost per pound of those is not in the thousands it's like you know what people are paying for like heads lettuce and things like that it's like that's where cannabis yeah. is is going and we're seeing that happen in the legal markets farmers don't yeah, make right. profit margins in like any crop except no. for drugs like i mean yeah yeah that's it it's true it's true it's a cash crop it's a luxury crop as they say I'm not saying, and I'm trying to down, sorry about even, the mic swipe. I'm not trying to downplay the importance of cannabis by, by any stretch of the imagination, but like, it's really like people have to co, people have to co, people have to collaborate, right? People have to grow and, and even if you're growing by yourself, you know, you can be influenced by people outside your property. And so there, there has to be a, like a, an understanding, whatever we want to call a social contract or whatever, you know, like. Uh, you know, like the hop growers are not going to appreciate the cannabis growers being this inlet for this really destructive pest. Right. And so I just feel like, I just feel like something should be appreciated about this 
that, Those that externalities, though, and that's exactly what they are. They're basically just externalities that that nobody's paying for, that nobody exactly paid for. Um, the one that I've always thought was interesting was like the honeybee farmers. It never pay people for the nectar that their honeybees eat. Oh yeah, you know. In fact, it often works the other way when they're brought into plants or to orchards or whatever to do pollination. Um, but like any beekeeper depends on their bees going out and finding flowers that like you or your neighbors or some other farm or whatever is growing, like all of those things. And then the farm stops growing those flowers and your bees don't have food anymore. Can you sue that farm? Like, Hey, my bees have historically eaten your flowers and now your flowers don't exist anymore. And my bees are starving to death. It's almost a, a situation like that, right. Where like getting imposed a new negative externality, it is basically the same as having a positive externality removed from you. Um, yeah. Anyways, it's on the global because... scale. That's the Amazon rainforest, right? It's a big carbon sink. It does a bunch of stuff that affects the entire globe. But yeah. as it gets smaller and smaller, it's not doing that so much. The problem so... is, it becomes: Are we gonna <laughs> make the government big... regulate it, or are we gonna have the people privately, as an industry, individually right. come through with a uh, reasonable way to manage it? And I think. In the most part, unless like, you know, environmental regulations or ag agencies step in, in which some cases they do, like California really has a strict ag import checkpoint, everything like we're a multi-billion dollar, the fifth largest economy in the world, mainly based on ag and tech. Um, so we have a, a lot of regulation and things like that. But yeah. some people would argue maybe that's not the best thing. But I know it's about 545 here. And that's about one Spartan grown typically gives us final thoughts and shout outs. So I want to pass the mic over to him to let him do that now. Thanks, Jack. Um, I wanted to just jump in and answer uh, Matthew's question about what's, what are we going to do? Even at, I can tell you what's going to happen in the cannabis community, Matthew. It's going to it's going to get passed around on clones all throughout the cannabis community until it finally <laughs> makes its way to a fucking commercial setting. And when it wipes out a commercial grow, people are going to start paying attention and they're going to play catch up just like they are with HPLVD. And everything else so that's how that's gonna go that's the way i see you're that probably goes. right that's the blueprint <laughs> we've seen right. it we've seen it with we've seen it yeah with cannabis yeah. and many other crops no i think that you're clairvoyant spartan i think you're right <laughs> <laughs> the new beads the new beads give it to him yeah. see the future now plus two yeah. to wisdom <laughs> thank you thank you but uh, I just want to shout out uh, the testers for that I'm at, that are all out there. You all know who you are. I've set out 50. I've got 50 different testers right now. And I've turned people, plenty of people down now because it's just too many to keep track of. But I'm really doing a, a wide test and hopefully get a lot of feedback. And I've been getting some good feedback back. Germination rates have all been good right now. Most people are still in veg. I've had a couple of people report that they've just recently flipped to flower. Uh, some people are on Cocoa for Cannabis with their journals, so check out check out Cocoa for Cannabis. Or if you're already a member, you can search some of the uh, strains on there. I think Lone Star Larf, uh, off the top of my head, he's got one going on there. Um, anyways, it's cool to watch these things grow. It's like watching, you know, I don't know, your creation grow in different gardens, and it's cool to see. So shout out to all those testers that are getting back with me. It's it's cool to hear from you. Um, and shout out chat for watching the show. Uh, love you guys. I'm going to shoot out to the Michigan Bros Grow Show. I'll be over there in like less than 15 minutes. So we'll see you over there. Before you go, Spartan, somebody asked, yeah. and we didn't answer this on the show, but they said, what is the most valuable seeds in your collection? 
And I think they were talking probably like money wise, but I was going to answer the seeds that I've gotten from my friends, like Spartan Grown and Russ Brandon, because they're pretty irreplaceable at this point. And uh, <laughs> I know the quality that was put into them. So I appreciate that. And I can't wait nice, to man. see them in flower. So thank you again for those. Appreciate that. No problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. The most valuable seeds are the ones that haven't been popped yet, man, because they're not really worth anything to pop them. And so I got a lot of, them. well, I guess that's not true. Some people like to make money out of them. That's just not my mindset. Some people like to hold on to them and then resell them. I, I Anything that I buy, I have an intention of selling, not selling. I have an intention of dropping them into water or, or whatever and popping those things. Throw them out, people. Anyways, that's just me. <laughs> Much love, guys. Keep growing. Right See you next week. Love, Spartan. <laughs> Thank you, Spartan. Always good. Later, man. Some people treat them like baseball cards and like uh, collect them and trade them. And some, some, I think, just hoard them just to have them because they like to have them. And oh, yeah. uh, nothing wrong with that. But uh, I do personally buy <laughs> them to grow them. As several growers have told me, buying seeds and, and growing seeds are two totally separate hobbies. I, I yeah, definitely I agree can relate. Yeah. I mean, scrolling seed bank is like, it's a dangerous uh, thing to do because you're inevitably going to see yeah. one that sounds good and then you're going to want to buy them. So yeah, you're going to be like, oh, that's going to be interesting. Hmm, I'll get some of those too. And then you're, you're like, like, will something catch my eye? Something will catch you. I try it for seed buyers good. anonymous. <laughs> we could, uh, I'll give one tip, do some math, mental math, or go through and count every single seed that you currently have. If you're one of those people who's bought a bunch of seeds <laughs> and then see how many do I pop per grow? How many grows do I do per year? And then math out how many years of seeds you have before you decide I'm going to buy yeah, five, right. 10, 15 because uh, I got to that point, I was like, oh, wait, I have 10 years worth of seeds. I need to start popping them now and growing them. That's and stop what I'm saying. Them. Yeah, them, they're just two totally different hobbies. I mean, you, you, you got your seed collection and then you got the, like, you know, the, the garden. Having a big seed collection makes it a lot easier to figure out what to grow in your garden or harder, probably. I don't know. but Probably harder. But if you, you know, have the disposable income, I, I guess to have like the option of like, oh, I've got this, you know, blueberry tucked away. If I want a blueberry, I could pop that and maybe cross that. And I want to have it just in case I really want it someday. But I also, on the other end, this is the cheap home girl. I want people to save their money. And I've seen too many people in crisis situations where if they would have set money aside and, and had a savings account and had cash on hand, they'd be able to handle a medical emergency or a car crash or somebody passing. Yeah. But they can't pay for their funeral. And then you're raising funeral costs by selling off their seed collection. It breaks my heart when I see that. Like, it's not a pretty situation. I've seen that a dozen plus times where people are like mm -hmm. having to let go of everything that they, and they're taking $1 to 10 on some of this, these packs. It's like they spent a hundred on it and they might get 10, 15, 20, and they're having to go through bids and ship all this shit out. And doing that in the middle of a crisis is uh, not the most fun. Collecting things. Yeah. It's an expensive hobby, whatever you're collecting. If you're collecting stamps, if you're collecting coins, if you're collecting like rare antique dolls or whatever you're collecting, yeah, I'm collecting hundreds. What's that? I'm collecting hundreds. But I want to say, you know, to me, it's like seeds have have a certain uh, inherited uh, hope to them because I always say to myself, there'll be a day when I have a piece of property that I can fucking get every single seed I have wet and, you know, well, I guess I, I wouldn't do that, though, because I probably even have too many that I could even care for at one time. You know what I'm saying? But uh, yeah, and I, I have. I've tried discouraging people to give to me seeds because I just don't know when or wherever if I get to them. And then when you start breeding yourself, then that flips everything because now you want to test the shit that you just made. And then I have the whole vault sitting over there. And 
to look at what I just made. I need to pop a whole bunch of my own shit. So then that takes up all the room because I want to do a good, you know, get a good sample size in. And yeah, so that's my take. But it is, it's like hope. I, I always envision that time where I'm going to have like that half acre where it's just like all different strains that I have in that seed wall right now, you know? And it could happen. It could happen. It will happen. That's all. I'll say sure. not to uh, encourage people as I, I was just, you know, encouraging people to save their money, maybe. And if they've got enough seeds to just yeah, pop the ones they do have. Uh, Canomic Laboratories, uh, Canomic, Canomic, I don't know, C-A-N-N-O-M-I-C, I believe, on Instagram. They just released a like old seed popping kit. It's like a sterilized um, uh, Petri dish, basically. And they showed like a, I think it was like a 15 popping should probably pop it up I'll, I'll bring that up for maybe next week's show but uh pretty cool stuff to look at and I, i've seen some people like uh caper purple or casper purple in, in san francisco doing like a <laughs> sterilized test tubes to pop they did like a little bit of cocoa in the very bottom of it and they'd like sterilize the test tube and give it just like a perfect amount of ec or whatever just enough for it to get it to pop within that test tube and they're having like 100 results across like thousands of seeds like just crazy good results so there's um some interesting and and cool technology not that it needs to be overcomplicated, but with older seeds yeah. or vulnerable <laughs> seeds or something like that or, or extremely expensive rare things like that you might want to bring back that uh you've been collecting and maybe didn't get to popping i saw that post on ig and i looked on the website i believe it's still a pre-order only and it's like stupid expensive just okay. so well it's, to warn it's, people yeah how expensive <laughs> do you remember tell i think it was 230 I'll, I'll pop it up right now 230 bucks yeah if their tissue culture stuff is pretty expensive too if you're going to do yeah. it yourself you'll save some money but you're getting the expertise so you're kind of paying for it right. if, if you I really 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 oh, really wanted point. to do it some, with something my recommendation before that depending on how many you have scarification of the seed like a matchbox with uh some uh Ooh. whatever paper the um Sandpaper, like sandpaper. sandpaper. You <laughs> shake it up in there. Some sort of sandpaper. abrasive material. Yeah, yeah, sandpaper inside of a pen. I think Doc has said in the past, like in a pen tube, you roll, roll it in there and you shake pen, it up. And then you take a tube, you get your hand finger on the top of the bottom, and you just shake it like that in the tube of a little square of sandpaper. It works great because the old seeds are hard and the water doesn't want to penetrate as well. So you're just allowing pores for that water to penetrate in and then allowing it to crack. The other thing is I have a seed cracker from at the seed cracker. It's made by a guy called Woodshed 13. 2020 Mendocino makes a little less expensive version. People have 3D printed them now. You could go buy like an acorn cracker or something on Amazon, but you just twist it, twist it, twist it, and then it makes a little pop. And there you go. You listen to it right next to your ear because if you twist it yeah, anymore, it squishes. Just with my thumb and, and index finger, like a seed that won't pop, it's been in water for like three days and I'm about to get, just give up on it. You, you grab it along the hemisphere basically. And yeah, in the seed popper where cracker works, so you can do it. I mean, with your fingers, it's a better, higher chance of screwing it up too with your fingers. But like, if you're going to give up anyways, take it on the, on the hemisphere and just kind of like squeeze it until... You just kind of feel the hemisphere kind of like, you know, the two edges of the, the shell pop away from each other and then stop. Like, like you just want to kind of break that seal um, because oftentimes the, the, the little seedling just won't have enough energy to, to sort of break that. It won't, the, you know, it gets too dried out. It doesn't imbibe properly or fully. Um, and that can definitely help. But yeah, it's last ditch efforts, I always think. Yeah, you can also use like they're called medical hemostats. It looks like a pair of scissors. They're used to like pinch things together. Um, but 
even I saw somebody use a pair of scissors where they went really slow at the little uh, point in where like the scissors meet. I feel it. The only way you know when you've done it enough is like you actually like kind of feel it in your in, in like the seed popper. You can go so slowly, but like anything else, man, you got to get feedback because you it, if you squeeze it anymore after that, you're just gonna crush the. Little it squishes it, yeah. I, the one time just for to test, like I popped 15 of them, and every single time I heard the pop, I stopped. But then one time, just out of curiosity, I was like, "What if I go one more little crank?" And just th this thing is like a, a threaded, uh, basically a screw that goes down. So it's it's yeah. very small threads. And one, not even full turn, like a quarter or half turn extra after the pop killed the seed. And that was the only one out of the 15 that didn't pop the first time I tried it. So even with new seeds, I actually used to, just to get consistency, I popped every single one before I put it into the paper towel. And I was like, oh, I, I have this device. I might as well try and use it. And it was giving me great germination results, but I also get them with having to do that but we're at the uh, end of the show now and i want to pass it around so everybody gets their time to get their final thoughts and shout outs in so i'll pass it over first to dr mj hey thank you i had fun it's always a, a fun show so thanks jack for kind of bringing us together each week to, to do this the rest of the panelists uh everybody in chat thank you guys always you know it's kind of like two shows going on at the same time and the, the chat show is sometimes at least as entertaining as whatever that we're talking about on air. Um, so thanks to that. You know, I, I dropped a, a new video today on my channel. So go over to Dr. MJ Coco channel and check that out. Um, check us out over at CocoForCannabis.com. And um, yeah, I think I'll have another announcement to, to next week. Um, and it's almost time to start planning for the spring autoflower challenge, which is, it starts on April 20th and we've decided to do size matters this time, which is basically about sort of like how big is your grow space. So there's going to be like a two by two group and a four by four group or whatever, but we're also going to do side challenges to grow the biggest auto and whoever grows the smallest auto for the size matters spring auto flower challenge. The, si the smallest auto, you know, you might sort of back into that one. That might not be, you know, your initial goal when you Accidental start the challenge. Yeah, exactly. But the biggest auto, I think this will be a fun sort of like demonstration of, of you know, for everybody that thinks autos need to be small little plants. Um, so check that out or get ready to grow with us on April 20th. And um, yeah, it's been fun. Grow with love. Cheers to April 20th. That's my wife and I's anniversary, 420. <clears throat> good date. Uh, next up, we've got Matthew Gates. Yeah, good chat, good discussion as always. If you're interested to learn more about pest abatement, there are a few ways you can do it. You can reach out to me professionally and check me out at zenthanol.com. You can also check me out on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, where I'm posting a bunch of cool information and videos a lot more lately. I have actually just dropped a um, the second part of my first live stream of January with the Q&A section. So you go check it out. Lots of really great questions there. You can also vote in my community tabs. I took a week break, but you can check me out there every week. We can vote on the live stream topic. So if you're interested in that, you can do that. You can also check me out at Twitter and Instagram at SyncAngel. And I look forward to our mutual success as always. Good stuff. Big shout out to Twitter. Finally accepting legal cannabis um, sponsors to come on and advertise. So that lends to me to believe if you're in a legal state, posting about your cannabis grows on Twitter, you will not be deleted like on Instagram and many other platforms, which 
makes it the first major social media platform to be doing that. So hats off to them. Shout out to them for that, because uh, that's a big step forward. And I hope the other social media platforms will learn that uh, it makes sense to allow cannabis to be, you know, posted and, and advertised on there because it's legal in most places. So cheers to them for doing that. Big, big ups. And uh, next up, we got Noah, the Groa. Yeah, I uh, had a good show. I was kept trying to get to end there. I wanted to say something, but uh, there's a difference between uh, collecting seeds and growing seeds. And there's a difference between smoking weed and growing weed. So I we were talking earlier about the people that 99% of people that eat food don't grow. I bet you 99% of, if not more, of people that smoke weed don't grow weed. Everybody listening to the show or most people listening to the show are most likely growers. Shout out to you. You guys are the 1%. Growing isn't easy. It's a, it's a lot of work. Like Doc said, you're going to you have to go to sleep. You have things you have to do, and you're going to put your grow off. But keep going. It's it's a very uh, useful skill. I love it. It's in my blood. My family, I come from farmers. So uh, my uncle told me it's in your blood, and uh, my grandma was a big flower grower. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I love this stuff. I'm very passionate about it. I like to be around other people that are. All you guys in the panel, shout out to you. And I'll shout out to everyone listening, because if you're listening to a growing show, most likely you're a grower. You're interested in growing. Keep it going. Keep the flame alive. I'm uh, Noah the Girl. You can catch me out there, and I'll see you guys all next week. Thank you, Noah. Always a pleasure to have you, man. You uh, inspire me every time, especially you, you wrap it up nicely in a perfect bow. A man of few words, but when you do get them out there, it's uh, always very great discussion. And uh, thank you again for that uh, inspiration there at the end. Great stuff. And I agree with all of what you guys were talking about. And last and certainly not least, we've got the American one of the panelists. Hello, Jack. Thanks again for hosting. You always do a bang up job. Awesome. And it's good to see everyone on the panel. And yeah, it's it's missing out on uh, ETG and Brandon and Kyle. I hope everyone, all them guys are doing good and good to see everyone in chat. Sorry, it wasn't more and more active in there, but I was in there seeing everybody. Thanks for coming, hanging out. And yeah, I'm the American one on uh, YouTube, the American one underscore with underscore Keens on the IG. You can hit me up if you want to get some beans or just want to hit me up and ask me something. And yeah, have a great week, everyone. Catch you next week. Thank you, as always, Tal, and appreciate the shout outs to the panelists who aren't with us tonight. Happy birthday to Kyle and look forward to seeing Brandon and Aaron when they can get back with us. And shout out to all the people in Oklahoma listening and everywhere else. Uh, I want to give Smot Poker, we'll go a few minutes over because Smot Poker is such a longtime listener and loyal fan and a great person. I just got to answer this question. So cheers to you, Smot Poker. They ask, should one harvest the CBD strain early, parentheses, say week six or seven for optimal CBD content, or is that bullshit? And this is when I have some specific insight because living in California, there was a pretty good CBD market. Wayne Laughter of House of Harlequin, the guy who found the Harlequin, uh, big CBD producer, said it was a 32 to one CBD to THC when they harvested it earlier. I want to say it was about week six. And if they waited a few more weeks, that particular strain would go as uh, high as a four to one at like week 11. So the later they pushed it, the more THC there was. And each week it would about, uh, he said about half. So like a 34 to one to like a 17 to one. To what like were the, the actual percentages of like the, the CBD that when was the, was that the CBD going down the whole time and THC coming up or was THC it just was going THC up? Was coming so up so I think it was strong. like a 15% to like a half percent and then 15% to 1%, for example. And like the CBD would probably end at like 17% and the THC was ending at like four or five or something like that. And uh, so it was more was close to a one-to-one. 
like at week six when they harvested it was that like 20 percent? what was that cbd percent it'd be like 15 or 16 percent. i think I, I don't know how super high it was uh, okay. some of the stuff but is like the ratio that you're improving it's not the actual yield of cbd and some strains are like true 30 to ones it'll be a 30 percent thc and like one percent cbd uh or, or the other way around 30 percent cbd and one percent thc type thing so depending on the genetic lineage right the the ratio would tend to if there is any amount of thc it's going to linger up a little bit towards the end so like if you're a hemp farmer for example you want to harvest a little bit on the early end to avoid that thc spike to avoid testing hot and then having your stuff not test right. as hemp. but if you're just looking to harvest T cbd because cbd is good medicine for you um, you can push it you can push it right because it's not necessarily lowering the cbd as it gets older the the thc is just coming up and that makes the ratio change but you're not losing cbd i think that's an important sort of very different people will, will make that decision differently based on that knowledge exactly and the yeah. one thing that happens really is cbda on the plant does turn to cbd just pure cbd which happens when inhaled or decarboxylated and things like that, just like THCA to THC. So it's something to be considered, but I, I wouldn't worry about pushing it further unless like you're testing for like hemp, which is, I would imagine spot poker in this case wouldn't be. Most people listening to the show, if they're growing CBD, it's because they just want a good healthy dose of CBD. So shout out to you, Smart Poker. I hope that gave you a little bit of insight and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that on next week's show. But if you want to find me, I'm at Jack Greenstock. That predominantly on instagram but i should change it to jack underscore greenstock because that's my twitter name i'm like verified and shit now i paid the little fee or whatever so my replies actually show up and uh, i want to support a company that supports cannabis users so i'm uh put my money where my mouth is on that one and uh it's a, a main site and it's not, not too expensive so shout out to them and i look forward to seeing you all next week jack greenstock signing out grow love everyone keep growing